Come on, baby. Come on. Get your shit. We got to go right now. I was so worried. What about our bags? Fuck the bags. If we don't split right now, we're going to miss the train. Come on. I'll be downstairs. Is everything well? Just come on. No talking now. Uh, are we in danger? Come on, honey. Where did you get this motorcycle? It's not a motorcycle, baby. It's a chopper. Come on. Let's go. What happened to my Honda? I'm sorry, baby. I had to crash that Honda. Will you come on now, please? Come on. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. You hurt? No, no. I, I might have broken my nose. It's no biggie. Come on. Hop on. Uh, baby, please. We, Honey, we got to hit the fucking road. Get on. Come here, come here. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. You were gone so long, I started to think dreadful thoughts. Oh, I'm sorry, sweetie. I didn't mean to worry. Everything's fine. How was your breakfast? It was good. Did you get the pancakes, the no, blueberry no, no. pancakes? I didn't have blueberry pancakes. I had to get buttermilk. Oh, Are you sure no. you're okay? Honey, since I left you, it is, this has been without a doubt the single weirdest fucking day of my life. Come on, hop on. I'll tell you all about it. Come on, get on. Gotta go, gotta go. Come on. Whose motorcycle is this? It's a chopper, baby. Whose chopper is this? Zed's. Who's Zed? Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to an, another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever i'm zach i'm matt and this is episode number 151 pulp fiction part two yeah out of nowhere very casual entrance to the show today what well, was unplanned we That's did true. not really want to have to do two parts although we knew it was a possibility yeah at what point was it dawning on you that there was just no way pretty quick yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i was like we're not getting even into the movie at all yet and it's like almost 40 minutes yeah, in yeah. like we're not gonna be able to keep this under three hours <laughs> there has to be a cutoff at some point that's right i mean both you and i were very thrilled with the download numbers for i know what you did last summer we were excited to see the interest in that movie yeah but even you and I, who were pleased with the episode, we thought it was a, a good episode from us. We knew that it's a big commitment. It is. Because we're not famous. Well, that's true. <laughs> we're not professional comedians. <laughs> we're not professional it, really. critics or yeah. anything. To ask people to listen to us ramble on about a semi-successful slasher yeah. for two hours is asking hell right. of a lot of I people mean, people have been very honest about how painful it is at times <laughs> really <laughs> i've heard some things you know what just the length <laughs> no i mean listening to us two ass clowns drone on about <laughs> whatever you know what <laughs> i don't want to hear this i know no so it's good we wanted to keep pulp fiction somewhat reasonable 
we knew it was going to keep going and spiral. And plus, we had planned on talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which we will do at the end of this episode. Right. Which could inspire a certain chunk of time on its own. Right. And we wanted to do our rankings of Tarantino's nine films. And aye, so aye, it aye. just was yeah. spiraling. People getting overwhelmed. We hadn't even made it to the Gimp yet in part right. one. It was like, where are we going to go with this? <laughs> and that's the difficulty in our particular format that we've fallen into. Where I think if we would have done Pulp Fiction in the first 50 episodes of our show, it would be a lot different than what it is now. Yeah, I think we so. We go so much more in-depth in the plot now. and we, talk, we try to mention everything we possibly can. Right. And we so like to get in there. It's possible that maybe taking a, a wider approach to Pulp Fiction would have worked better, but you run into that fear of missing something that you <laughs> wanted to say. Yeah, I know. And then it's just like once you post the episode, there's no going back. <laughs> you know? It's just we, one of those things that's just like, how the hell did we not talk about that? Which yeah. we still run into. Anyway. Oh, yeah, for sure. The risk you run into doing it this way is you get so reliant on your detailed notes that if you just assume you're going to remember something you might not remember it because you're so into your notes right and you're like oh i thought i was definitely going to remember to say that i needed to write it down <laughs> and sometimes when you do like go buy something i'll be like well what about this and you're like, yeah I-, I wasn't gonna bring that up <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm very quick to shoot down any and all contributions <laughs> from you yeah. especially when you spent a good part of part one of this episode facing the complete opposite direction from me for <laughs> well, some reason. Well, I don't reason. want it to be like a... Well, you know, off mic, we hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> We're actually recording this in separate rooms. <laughs> yeah. In separate places. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're going to be building towards it's gonna be like one of those bands where the people don't even talk off oh, yeah. stage you just like right. come in and do your part <laughs> eventually yeah behind the podcast or you know like opie and anthony or something yeah, right yeah <laughs> okay so follow the show on twitter at greatest pod subscribe on apple podcasts or itunes matt tells me we have a lot of new listeners i think That's so exciting yeah. well subscribers <laughs> anyway they might not be listeners that's okay. We yeah. don't actually need people to listen to the episodes. Right. We just need those downloads so that we think people are listening. <laughs> Keeps us going. It's funny. I mean, it really doesn't take much for us to keep going with this podcast. No, <laughs> if we I mean, think even like, like a couple people are listening. Uh, there's like definitely thrilled. like tons of weeks where I'm just like, no one listens at all anymore, but it's had like no impact on whether or not I'm interested <laughs> in doing the show. I'm just like, yeah, I mean, it's just part of my life. Yeah, I mean, who would have thought when we started this that we would s- still be this into it this I much know, longer? It's just like, people are like, we fucking get it. You guys talk about it every episode that you can't believe you're still doing the show, yet here you are. Well, we did stop once for four months. That's true. And people got mad. They did. So shut up. <laughs> so here Can't we you are. just be happy we're we doing this? We gave you what you wanted. So when we last left off on Pulp Fiction, the 1994 classic film from Quentin Tarantino, we had just started to talk about the middle portion of the film, really, the gold watch, the portion where Bruce Willis comes into it, the section that is, I would say, most often maligned, at least parts of it are, where people don't necessarily love every moment of this portion of the film. Now, before we jump into the big Fabian debate... Let's talk about Esmeralda Villa Lobos. You want to know what, man? This is like not even on my radar that there's this big. 
caveat. You didn't realize that people don't like that part of the movie? No. No. I thought that was like a pretty well-known I thing. guess it, it probably is, but you know how out of touch I am. That's true. Before we get to that, let's talk sure. about Esmeralda Villalobos, played by Angela Jones. So I think... The super, f- yeah, super sexy. I, I would agree. And I think the first time I saw this, and really like in subsequent viewings, like when he first gets into the cab, I'm always like thinking... I think the first time I saw it, I'm like, oh, this is his girlfriend. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, like, I think, like, I'm always like, I wish it was his girlfriend. That this was, like, all part of the plan that she was picking him up in the cab. Right. Well, yeah, well, once you see the situation with Fabian, though, you realize, like, how protective he is. He's not going to involve her in this. True, yes. But, yeah, I mean, this scene is so weird because earlier in the movie, Vincent and Jules are driving in a car, and you see a very real, normal world passing by the windows of the car it's very based in reality later you see vincent hurriedly rushing mia to lance's house and again it's a very real world around that car and now butch in this taxi with esmeralda not real completely fake right almost something out of a movie from another era yeah very stylized it always reminds me a little bit of sin city Yes. A movie that Tarantino would direct like a, a, a scene in yes. a cabin, or a car at least. I guess it's not a cab. It, there is something to the Bruce Willis segment of it that feels very Sin City-esque. Is that because he's in Sin City? <laughs> Could be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get what you mean. I got a bum ticker. He does seem like the archetypal like blockhead right. character yes. of like this brute who maybe has a heart, maybe doesn't. But anyway... Butch's getaway taxi driver, Esmeralda Villalobos. Tarantino saw this actress, Angela Jones, in a 1991 short film called Curdled, playing a character called Gabriella, who was like a crime scene cleaner. If anyone's ever seen the movie Sunshine Cleaning with Amy Adams, I think that's the gist of it. I don't know. I've never seen this short. But anyway, he really liked this character and this actress, so he brings her into Pulp Fiction. And everything I was reading online was like indicating it as if She's playing the same character, even though the names are different. The character in Curdled was named Gabriella. This character's called Esmeralda. I don't know. But apparently it also helped inspire the idea for the wolf of this guy that works for the mob that comes in and cleans crime scenes. But as you pointed out before we even started recording, Harvey Cattell played a similar character in a movie, like, I think the year prior or something. Oh, yeah. I think it was 93, yeah. But at the end of the day, Tarantino financed a full-length version of Curl in 96. I forget who's in it. I think one of the Baldwins is in it. I don't Has know. Has anyone seen that? I haven't, but who okay. knows? This is such a brief moment. She's like this weird... I like how Butch is like, are you some sort of a weirdo? And she's like, no, but it's a subject I'm really interested in, the idea of murdering someone, as if that doesn't make her a weirdo. <laughs> it's like... No, I'm not a weirdo, but I'm just really into murder. the idea of murdering someone, and I want to know what that's all about. <laughs> it's just like, what? She's a murderino. But when she keeps saying, like, you're him. Hey, Mister. What? You were in that fight. The fight on the radio. You're the fighter? Let me give you that idea. No, come on. You're him. I know you're him. She's just super sexy. Yeah, she is. I just like that character. What they refer to as a stone cold fox. 
So Fabian, for or against? Fine with. So you're for. Yeah. I would say that I was a part of that against movement, I think, for a long time. Not as insane about it as some people and annoying about it as like Bill Simmons or something. Can I say this? It's something that I've never felt the need to take a side on, really. It's not something that I'm like, this is one of my favorite parts of the movie, but it's not something that I've ever felt like has detracted from the movie for me. Yeah, that's fair. I do think that it's a lot different, the vibe between Butch and her, than most of the rest of the film. That's true. But that difference has changed in my mind. For Whereas maybe earlier in my life, I would have seen that difference as not a good thing. And yeah. now I see that as a great thing. I'm like, yeah, I like this change of pace now. Fabian Butch's girlfriend, wife, I'm not really sure, yeah. played by Maria de Medeiros she's like this French girl she's got a very cute accent she's maybe pregnant yeah I mean she's sweet she's kind of annoying I think the way that she is sort of makes for how he reacts towards her the whole thing of like him fight like him losing his temper oh yeah but then having to like calm down and then like calm her down right because he's like yeah like I think that scene works so well because of the way that she is yeah, it's very entertaining to me now, this dynamic between the two of them, where essentially, if you listen to part one, we talked about the backstory of this watch and why it's so important to Butch. And now he's having to flee Los Angeles for his life because he's double-crossed this gangster, Marcellus Wallace. Right. He's told Fabian to bring the watch. He says that he even reminded her specifically to bring the watch. <laughs> yeah. She forgets the watch. This causes him to flip out. She, of course, is upset. Oh, my gosh. I love his flip out and him trying to like calm himself down after he throws the TV. <laughs> yeah. It's super insane. And then he calms himself down because he realizes that he's scaring her. And there is, even though he is a boxer and he's frightening at times and his anger seems out of control... There is a certain sweetness to the relationship because once he realizes that he's scaring her and that she didn't fully understand how important the watch was, yep. that he has to like calm down and then calm her down. But then once he gets out to the car, I he's know, like starts flipping, flipping out, out again. again. <laughs> I love that. It's the perfect Tarantino plot device yeah. where the watch is so important that it's worth <laughs> the absurdity this of the risk. story. <laughs> Leading up to why it's important. And again, a recurring thing throughout the movie, as we talked about in part one, is this subverting expectation. So you think you know where this is heading. At various points during it, you think you know where it's heading. You're like, okay, well, now this happened, so this is definitely where it's heading. And then things keep changing, and there's all these different curveballs thrown at you. And where it ends up is somewhere you could have never imagined. You're just like, what the fuck? Well, even... so. Where you think it's going, but after the resolution of the apartment scene, you're just like Exactly. We're that's good. what I mean. You're like right. at yeah. that point yeah, you're right. like, Okay, well that was pretty exciting. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like a movie. <laughs> and then you know <laughs> Right. <laughs> it's weird how it all plays out, but okay. So yeah, he goes back to his apartment, he doesn't think anyone's there. Well, I mean it and it does seem crazy. They established this whole thing with the watch, and he's gonna go get the watch, but this is fucking idiotic that he would go back to his apartment. Yeah, certainly the sentimentality and even the intense, horrible thing that his father had to go through to get him that watch still doesn't seem worth... Throwing your life away. Yeah, I mean, what are you doing? 
But he goes back there. He gets the watch. It doesn't seem like anyone's there at first. He then goes into the kitchen. He starts making these Pop-Tarts. He's making, like, an absurd amount of noise I know. when you actually think yes, about it. I, it was I feel like it's impossible viewing. based on where the bathroom is that Vincent in the bathroom doesn't hear this. I know. As he's making these Pop-Tarts, he notices that, like, huge gun on the counter. <laughs> giant silencer. Which, the way they do that is so great. The way this is, like, framed and the way he's, like, just oblivious to everything making these Pop-Tarts. And then he, like, looks over and sees that. You can almost get into the mind of the character of Butch and, like, feel that feeling in your stomach when you would turn and see that. Oh, right. Because it's just like, oh, shit, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Out of nowhere. Something's wrong here. But at the same time, it's like, well, you're not dead yet. Because, obviously, he's very guarded leading up to the apartment scene, but he's sort of, like, now let his guard down. Yes. Because it doesn't seem like anyone's there. Right. Now, I, I mean, is Vincent just, like... There's no shot this guy is showing up at his apartment. Yeah. Or is it, or you, I think he thinks that this is a waste of time to check the apartment. Right. There's no way he's going to be here. Yeah, or yeah. come. And once he's not there, it's like, why would he come back? Right. He stupidly leaves the gun in the kitchen while he goes to take a shit, I guess. Right. He must have, like, irritable bowel syndrome. Once we see earlier in the movie, he's also taking a shit with that same book at uh, that coffee yeah, shop. Right. Which I guess is not technically the same day. But it feels like it might as well be. True. <laughs> it's hard to even tell, but whatever. So what happens is the door opens to the bathroom. At this point, Butch has the gun in his hand. The toaster pops the Pop-Tarts out. He shoots and kills Vincent. And it's such a crazy way to do this because up until the transition to this section of the movie, The Gold Watch, Vincent was essentially the main character. That's what it feels like. And now his death is like an afterthought. Right. I remember the first time watching this and just being, like, stunned by that. Same. I was like, what? Because it's just so different from how any other movie would approach that moment. I know, and you feel pretty invested in that character. Yeah. And then it's just, like, the most throwaway death. Yeah, because this isn't his story right. anymore. This is now this other story. And he's just someone that Butch crossed paths with at that bar. Yeah. And then Butch keyed his car. And now this is just Butch a guy him. that's waiting in his yep. apartment. It's just a guy that's in his way of getting what he wants, which is this watch. But the weirdest part is, especially for executives who are potentially reading this script, you'll just see Vincent alive again later in the movie. <laughs> right, yeah. And it's just like, what? What? And you get back into his story. Yeah. Yeah, even at the beginning of this, like once the initial fight is thrown, there's that brief moment in the backstage area of the oh, fight right. or whatever With where... Marcellus and Marcellus and then Mia's there and Vincent's like how are you and she's like I'm fine like acting like she doesn't know what oh, he's yeah, talking right. about or whatever like anything strange on his way out thinking that everything is done Butch is driving back now to the motel to get Fabian their plan is to get on some train to right. Knoxville or some shit I love this throw in just the most unexpected <laughs> so he comes to like a stoplight paths crossing and crossing the street with, like, a box of donuts and a drink is Marcellus himself. Right. Motherfucker. <laughs> they both see each other kind of at the same time, and he's just like, what the fuck? And then just... <laughs> Tries to run him over with the car. Run, he does run oh, him yeah. over with the car, but then he goes right into traffic, hits another car. So he crashes the, uh, the car he's in while Marcellus is, like, unconscious in the street or whatever. Yep. And those people, like, the women, they're all women. There's like six or seven of them are like gathered around <laughs> yeah. Marcellus. One of them's Kathy Griffin. Right. Which is insane. Which is really like, I don't know, it's distracting almost. <laughs> yeah. 
Marcellus comes to, he starts shooting shots across the street. He hits some woman in the hip, which is like hilarious. <laughs> right. Because she's screaming. There's this bizarre chase now. Butch is dazed. He's got like glass in his face and he's like running away while Marcellus is firing at him, chasing him around a corner. Butch ducks into this pawn shop, waits for him on the other side of the door, this sneak is just attack. such a crazy thing to write into something where it goes with this pawn shop because <laughs> like by the time once you get into the pawn shop stuff it's like you almost forget how you even got there yeah because it's so crazy once in the pawn shop butch gets the upper hand he's like punching him in the face he's a boxer obviously these punches right. are meaningful but the guy behind the counter at the pawn shop pulls a shotgun and is like get off of him yeah. and step away from him back off butch and you think, okay, well, this guy's probably going to call the cops or something. Because you're like, well, maybe someone is going to return to normalcy. <laughs> like, the cops have to show up <laughs> right, in this. Yeah. Nope. He hits Bush with the butt end of the shotgun. Well, I mean. Knocking him out. What's really crazy about the no cops here is, like, this crazy scene that happened outside. Yeah. Two they car crashes. The cops never find shot. him. Yeah. Right. They don't know what like, happened to these guys. Yeah. Seems like a big risk for whatever fucked up operation Maynard and Zed are running right to take these guys that were oh, just involved in some huge thing <laughs> yeah. they don't know who these people are obviously getting involved with somebody like Marcellus was gonna potentially be a huge mistake right. but like they just go for it the thing is that's weird though I always think that when they come to in the basement with those like ball gags in their mouths tied to the yeah. chairs that Zed is already there but that's not how it is it's still only Maynard, and then Zed comes in, and he goes up and gets him. Okay, right, yeah. How the fuck does that guy get both of those guys down the stairs, up into the chairs, tied to the chairs, without them nuts. waking I mean, up, Ving without Rames them fighting is back? huge. Yeah, and, okay, they're both unconscious, but there's no guarantee. You know what I mean? Like, if, I feel like doing all of that stuff, even if that guy was strong enough to somehow get them down the stairs, get them tied into chairs and everything. I would be very nervous about how unconscious Ving Rhames yeah, is. Yeah, it's like, I feel like they're, one of them's going to wake up. Right. But somehow, they don't wake up it until works. they're already tied to the chair. Yeah. Maybe is it would have made a little more sense to have Zed come in yeah. first. Possible that the gimp was involved, and maybe he didn't really get back into that <laughs> chest until... I don't, I don't yeah. think so. Okay. So you're like, whoa. It, it just what like has happened in it this fades movie to now? black because they're unconscious. Next thing you know, they're in the basement, tied up with ball gags in their mouth. And I'm sure a lot of people who saw this movie weren't necessarily super familiar with like BDSM bondage shit. The internet was not a big thing yet, right, right, and so sure. unless you were like into this scene, either the gay bondage scene, like cruising, or <laughs> yeah, just. Or even I straight. You meant the scene of this movie. I was like having a hard time following. No, yeah, I mean like unless you were into scene. that sex scene that was yeah. that was into bondage and all that shit, then you really would have no reason to necessarily be super familiar with it. I mean, I'm sure some people were, but I'm talking about like a percentage of the audience that okay, would just be right. like, "What the I'm fuck is yeah. happening?" and wouldn't even necessarily be clued in from the ball gags. Like it would probably even take like a few more steps before some people were even like, "Oh, whoa." Like, where is oh, this going? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that was probably where I was at. Well, yeah, I mean, we were pretty young. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about, like, any right. adult, any age. Like, I'm talking about, like, even people older, way older. Like, I, I definitely don't think, I don't even know if even now I, I would get the ball gag and see, think sexual right away. Well, I think now I probably would. Yeah. Because, you know, there's really no other 
Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. World where those come <laughs> up. I mean, yeah. it's not really for any <laughs> well, other usage. Not a lot of scenes that are using. Well, gags. not even just in movies. No, I, mean, I know. Like I was not using a thing. scene in the like the oh. cruising scene. <laughs> He's like spraying them awake with like what I guess is like water, although it's in that weird canister. So I'm like, what even is that? Right. But I guess it has to be water. Yeah. He calls up Zed. I think in the script, Maynard and Zed are brothers. Oh, that's wow. never referenced in the movie. They. But that's something like that brothers. was written into the script, okay. though. Yeah, they don't look alike. Well, bring out the gimp. I think the gimp's sleeping. Well, I guess you just have to go wake him up now, won't you? That means you, big boy. Everything that Zed does seems to be like mic'd really loud. The way he like I would agree with that, yeah. There is something slaps to, right. Maynard's like neck when like, hey, we better go wake him up, talking about the gimp. And then when the gimp comes in and he's this fucking guy all in leather. Black, yeah, leather. This like I guess it's like a super sub or something. Someone whose like whole life is dedicated to being this I don't know. <laughs> person. One I don't even know this. what. Yeah. It took me a while too to even pick up on like the even darker part of all of this, which is like this is dark enough, but when you actually pay attention to what they say and all of the implications of right. it, it's like, oh, they're bringing these people down there doing all this fucked up shit and then eventually will kill them kill them yeah they're like buffalo bills right exactly, in fact exactly yeah yeah zed looks a little bit right, like true. buffalo bill he's got like the earring there's like yeah. a weird thing with he's like doing the tuck his motorcycle says grace in a weird way oh yeah we're right. just like yeah. that seems really grace gonna be all right effeminate and weird you're like is he talking about a person i know <laughs> when yeah, he first says that right yeah 
And then obviously, like, Maynard's answer is something to do with, like, street sweeping, probably. <laughs> I don't know. They go and get this gimp guy. And, I mean, that alone is just, I'm sure audiences were like, what the fuck? Like, what is <laughs> yeah. happening now? And you never even see this guy's face or anything. You don't know anything about him. But he's obviously living some insane life. Right. That you feel like, I think what I mean was, the first time I was watching this, the first few times probably, I felt like, even though this is like a fucked up thing and it was like a little bit different from the normal lifestyles that people choose, yeah, I felt like, oh, well, this guy is like consensually <laughs> there. Like, I get this guy. Not that I get it, but I felt like he's... <laughs> into this like right. this is his life but now i'm thinking like oh well when they refer to that as russell's room oh russell's old room you're like well who the fuck's russell right. obviously somebody they killed yeah yeah. they even say at one point like nobody kills anyone in my place of business besides me or zed but there is something about the gimp that it feels like he's a willing participant yeah but did he start out that way well yeah, or was know. he turned into that? Okay. And once I gotcha. they get bored with this guy, is I mean, is he gonna be dead too? Like probably. Russell? Yeah. Who knows? That's what's so insane about this. You're like, what? it definitely leads you down a path. It's like its own movie tucked into this movie. <laughs> yeah. You're like, there's so much to, like to break open. You're like, what the fuck? And yeah, I mean, typically in a movie, if you're gonna have these well of developed serial killers, then the movie is going to be about them. But it's not. They're just these random people that show up 75% of the way through yeah, the movie and you're right. just like okay now we're doing this Zed is a security guard I always thought he was a cop until like I said probably one of the more recent viewings I noticed oh wait no he's not actually a cop it's a security guard on this thing oh yeah I actually thought it was I, more yeah. fucked up that he could have been a cop that, right. I thought that was weirder same yeah but whatever I think I when yeah when I look back on it I it was in my mind for a while that he was a cop and then I think I re- remember thinking to myself like he wasn't anything and he just dresses up like this yeah i mean that definitely could be a possibility too right. but i i assume that he's like a security yeah. guard or something somewhere close when maynard first calls him and he's like the spider has got some flies and oh shit. yeah it's like oh god i mean this is truly like what the fuck is happening they do eeny meeny miny mo <laughs> they end up on marcellus at this point depending on how like experienced you were in the world i mean I I, i'm I sure was. i wasn't sure where this was even heading oh, right. i was like yeah. what i knew it wasn't good <laughs> I, yeah you do have a feeling that whatever it is ain't gonna work out for marcellus and butch here and you're certainly not thinking that they're even gonna show as much as they end up showing for like a second where you're just like oh my god right <laughs> I don't know if this has ever really been confirmed by anyone. I, I think it's possible that Quentin or Roger Avery has talked about it, but it seems like this is very much an homage to Deliverance. Yeah. But set in a more modern urban environment, which makes it even weirder for some reason. <laughs> I would say so, yeah. Because in the basement of a pawn Maybe shop. it's just because Deliverance is like at this point so old and even and by takes the nineties was Virginia. twenty years old. Over no, what I'm saying is because of that age, right. you've had that much time to associate that with hillbillies and rednecks in the deep south in the woods somewhere. You know what I mean? So that's oh, what yeah. you associate this with, and then moving that activity to this area, just in a basement in a random place of business in somewhere in L.A. <laughs> right. You're like, oh my god, and it does call to mind like serial killer teams that worked in California, like the Hillside Stranglers or, or shit like that, like truly terrible people that really existed. And 
some of them i don't i don't know how much was like homosexual stuff but it was, a lot of times it was like young girls or whatever but like there were serial killer people like really bad people that would abduct girls and like hold them for a long period of time before killing them in california i mean anybody who's listened to the last podcast <laughs> on the left would be familiar with like different always like variations of this <laughs> but it's just <laughs> little gems for you to talk about full of details well i'm just saying like that's what these characters call to mind oh You're yeah. just like right there's a whole story tucked into these little characters that don't even appear in the movie that long <laughs> you're know. just like holy shit <laughs> so they take marcellus into the other room russell's old room and close the door conveniently oh yeah and they leave the gimp to watch butch nothing good is gonna happen here i guess they don't know butch is a boxer who's like pretty strong and i don't know they didn't tie him up great right he gets out pretty quick the funniest part it's i mean you, you have to say it's comedy that the person they left to watch is wearing that stupid fucking leather mask with a zipper and can't get their attention. Yeah, I know. He's trying to scream right. out, and Butch punches him, knocks him out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's a boxer who just killed a guy. Maybe he killed the gimp with just one punch. Yeah, and I mean, I love where this scene leads because it's just like the decision that Butch has to make. Yeah. And you it, love it. It's right. like, you don't even really care that much about Marcellus as a character, oh, but I know. like you relate to how you horrible this is. You mostly feel like he's a bad guy. Yeah, but this is so bad. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, Marcellus wanted to kill him. He was going to kill Marcellus to defend himself. And now all of a sudden he's like, mere minutes ago in the I movie. I got to go back yeah, I know. and stop this <laughs> from Fucking, happening. Yeah. And him going through the pawn shop and going from like hammer to baseball bat to chainsaw. And you're right. just like, oh my God, like what is he going to pick? Yeah, yeah. And he ends up picking this katana sword, which of course, I mean, is so tarantino oh yeah i know it's like is the joke here just it i I can't even remember what the fucking name is from kill bill a hiroshi hanzo sword or something like that i mean it could be i don't know right he takes it down there yeah i guess he doesn't kill the gimp with the sword because the gimp is still knocked out yeah the gimp doesn't resurface so he goes into the room he opens that door into russell's room russell's old room i should say yep stabs maynard just a horrific scene when yeah. that door is oh, open. You're I just know, like, right? oh my God. <laughs> you can't believe they went there. Yeah, and just like the rest of the violence in the movie, that's kind of a flip attitude towards the sexual violence as well. I mean, this is certainly a, a rape. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. sure if it was a yeah. male-on-female rape, people would be losing their goddamn minds when they're now reassessing Tarantino's career. <laughs> but whatever. But I mean, I guess when you position everything as pulp, fiction yes okay you know like i can follow as the old pulp novels that's how they treated violence and and lurid subject matter it just was matter of fact like this is the way of life no yeah and so yeah this is happening butch kills maynard with the sword which is great yep certainly the crowd is invested here i would say as an audience member you are like butch you got to take these motherfuckers down this is the first time I think that Tarantino really brought out that great quest for vengeance right. that became like it's a staple. Now like the calling card, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't really happen in Reservoir Dogs, and the rest of Pulp Fiction doesn't really focus on revenge necessarily. This is just a little part of this movie where it it happens almost instantly. Like I said, it, just moments ago they were killing each other, right. and now you're like rooting for butch to just go down there and kill these guys yeah yeah 
And it's just like that so control terrible. of Tarantino being able to spin it like this. You want that gun, don't you, Zed? Go ahead and pick it up. Go ahead and pick it up. Come on, Zed, up, boy. I want you to pick it up. See? Step aside, whoop. tell you what now I'ma call a couple of hard pipe hitting niggas to go to work on the homes here with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch you hear me talking hillbilly boy I ain't through with you by damn sight I'ma get medieval on your ass I mean what now between me and you Oh, that wasn't now. I tell you what now between me and you. There is no me in you. Not no more. And so he has the sword to Zed's neck, and Zed wants to try sure. to grab the gun, but Go he ahead, really Zed. can't. Yep. He's like, I want you to do it. Yep. <laughs> and and then, I love this. Oh, yeah, from the background. Step aside, Butch. Yeah, and just, like, throughout this whole sequence, starting when they first, like, went into the back room, just randomly will th- be thrown into slow motion right. for a few seconds. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, you hear that shotgun click, and then it slips into slow motion for a few seconds, and Butch, like, gets out of the way, and Marcella shoots Zed in, I guess, in the like dick. The blows his oh, dick, okay, like, yeah. off. Right. Doesn't kill him so that he can have some guys come down, do some medieval <laughs> shit. Yeah, and that's another catchphrase that just entered like the popular lexicon from this movie. Like people started saying that. Right. Even people who probably didn't even know that this is what it was from. Oh yeah. And it just became a thing people would say. Going medieval on that ass but it, or whatever. You know, they do still keep you on your toes a little bit because it's just like Marcellus now has the drop on Butch. Yeah. So you're still feeling like there's a possibility, but I... You just think... Yeah, I no, feel right. like this is such an epic thing to come back and oh, save yeah. him. And right. Marcellus has to know that he would have been killed. Yeah. I mean, there was no leaving the situation right. at any point. <laughs> yeah. And it is just like, yeah, we good now? Yeah, the deal is struck. Basically, Marcellus is like, all right, number one, <laughs> you can't ever tell anyone right. about this. <laughs> an important piece here and number two you have to leave and you lose la privileges like you can't come back which i guess is to maintain the image that 
you can't. Yeah, if I ever saw you again, I'd kill you. Yeah, like you can't just like flaunt it in front of everyone that you double crossed me and then got to stay here because then people wonder why. Right. (laughs) And the most important thing is that people can't know (laughs) about this. (laughs) Butch leaves. He jumps on Zed's chopper. Returns to Fabian at the motel. It's, you know, you're thinking about Kill Bill when she drives off with the pussy wagon. Yeah. You know? Triumphant. Fabian, though, is basically like the voice of the regular people. She's the only normal person, really, in terms of how they react to things yeah. in this Where entire movie. Where the fuck movie. did you get this motorcycle? It's a chopper. <laughs> and she has a million questions, and then, of course, she gets upset, and then... Butch's impatience with her makes her cry again, and then he has to be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. She's just being normal, like, well, where's my Honda? And he's like, baby, I had to crash that Honda, which is such an insane answer. I I had to crash it. A pretty iconic line, Zed's dead, baby, Zed's dead, and then they drive off. And chronologically, this is the end. This is the last thing that happens chronologically. That's true. But the movie's not over. Right. We have so many minutes left. So that takes us now finally to part six, the Bonnie situation. It circles all the way back <laughs> yeah. to the execution of Brett. Which, I mean, you just have Flock this like, title thrown in and you're like, all right, well, what what could this be? Yeah, you have no idea at this yeah. point what that even is. So instead of seeing Brett be executed in the room like we did the first time, we're all of a sudden in the bathroom with a fourth man. Oh, yeah. Previously unknown to Who's Jules and Vincent. Man? It's actually Alexis Arquette. At that point, I think Robert Arquette. Okay. Has since passed away. Yeah. It's strange to think the guy that bursts out of the bathroom shooting at Jules and Vincent is the Boy George character from The Wedding Singer, but it <laughs> yes. is. Yes, okay. <laughs> so from very close range... This fourth man is firing at Jules and Vincent and somehow misses every shot. Yeah. Vincent and Jules kill him, but something immediately changes in Jules. Oh, yeah. He believes this is a miracle, an act of God. How could this have happened? It's (laughs) impossible. Not only believes it, is really hell-bent on making sure that Vincent is acknowledging it. Well, they fight like a married couple. Oh, that's true, yeah. It's important to have his feelings heard and acknowledged by his partner vincent right like you're not gonna just dismiss this you have to listen to me (laughs) right (laughs) there's a lot of bickering i do think that at the end of the day this movie is about relationships relationships between people oh yeah and there's a lot of violent set dressing around it and crazy shit happening for sure and like stylized just like cool criminals yeah it's all about how people relate to each other how Vincent relates to his boss and his boss's wife, how Jules and Vincent relate to each other, how Butch relates to Fabian. I mean, there's like all these different things. I would say that this retirement motivation from this scene is the most obvious character continuity from one story to the next. But I would tie that in with the baggies leading to the overdose to... Okay, yeah. The words exchanged between Butch and Vincent leading to the car being keyed and potentially leading to Butch not wanting to throw the fight. Like, all these different little things. This is just the most obvious one. This is the causation for what will happen in the final part of the film. Well, yeah, and affecting our two characters that we opened the movie with. Honey Bunny and Pumpkin, which we talked about so long ago at the beginning of part one. (laughs) Yeah, seriously, it feels like a day ago now. So now, after they kill the fourth man, they've already killed Flock of Seagulls on the couch, and they've killed Brett. That leaves Marvin, who they don't kill. Their guy. 
So they're going to take Marvin, even though Vincent's a little annoyed that he didn't say anything about the fourth man, which Seriously. leads me into what happens on their drive. They're still talking about whether or not this was a miracle. Vincent <laughs> asked Marvin's opinion. Casually holding his gun. For some the, reason. Right, yeah. Why is he holding his gun like that at this point? It seems like maybe there's a slight bump in the road, whatever. His finger's on the trigger. Goes off. Yeah. Shoots Marvin in the face, this, which is funny. <laughs> right. This does feel like something I would do if I was a criminal. <laughs> you ever seen that show, Cops? I was watching it one time, and there was this, this cop on. He was talking about, about this gunfight he had in the hallway with this, this guy, right? And he just unloaded on this guy, and nothing happened. He didn't hit nothing. Okay? It was just him and this guy. I mean, you know... It's, it's freaky, but it happens. Look, you want to play blind man, go walk with the shepherd. But me, my eyes are wide fucking open. What the fuck does that mean? I mean, that's it for me. From here on in, you consider my ass retired. Jesus Christ. Don't blaspheme. God damn it, I said, don't do that. Hey, you know why you fucking freaking out on us? Look, I'm telling Marcellus today. I'm through. Well, why don't you tell him at the same time why? Don't worry, I will. Yeah, and I'll bet you $10,000 he laughs his ass off. I don't give a damn if he does. <sighs> Marvin. What do you make of all this? Man, I don't even have an opinion. Well, you gotta have an opinion. I mean, do you think that God came down from heaven and stopped him? Oh, what the fuck's happening? Oh, oh man. Shit, man. Oh, man, I shot Marvin in the face. Why the fuck did you do that? Well, I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. Oh, man, I seen some crazy-ass shit in my time, but this... Chill out, man. I told you it was an accident. You probably... He went over a bump or hey, something. Hey, the car ain't hit no motherfucking bump. Hey, look, man, I didn't I didn't mean to shoot the son of a bitch. The gun went off. I don't know why. Well, look at this fucking mess, man. We're on a city street in broad daylight here. Believe it, man. Well, believe it now, motherfucker. We got to get this car off the road. You know, cops tend to notice shit like you're driving just a car. Just take it to fucking a, blood. Just take it to a friendly place, that's all. This is the valley, Vincent. Marcellus ain't got no friendly place in the valley. Well, you my fucking town, man. Shit. What you doing? I'm calling my partner in Toluca Lake. Where's Toluca Lake? It's just over the hill here, over by Burbank Studios. If Jimmy's ass ain't home, I don't know what the fuck we gonna do, man, because I ain't got no other partners in 818. Jimmy, yo, how you doing, man? It's Jules. Just listen up, man. Me and my homeboy in some serious fucking shit, man. We're in a car. We got to get off the road pronto. I need to use your garage for a couple hours. It was Travolta's idea to say, I just shot Marvin in the face, like in that voice, and yeah. make it, like, funny. He says it as if he just did something minor, <laughs> like, you know, stepped on his foot or something. <laughs> it's like, I should always shot Marvin in the face. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you think it was truly accidental? I guess Samuel L. Jackson was, like, asking Tarantino about it, and Tarantino wouldn't commit one way or the other. Travolta, of course, says it was an accident. I've always but 100% been in the camp that it's, it's an accident because I think that's funnier. Yeah, I do too. Right. But it's interesting to think about in connection with what we just saw, which was Vincent getting in Marvin's face back in the apartment, being like, well, "Why true. wouldn't you say anything?" Yeah, I mean, he, he they, seems pissed. They established that there would be reason to do it. I think it's important to point out now that we're you know knee deep <laughs> into part two. Yeah, that seriously, Vincent is not that cool. He seems cool on the surface. He can't play it cool. Yeah, he reacts poorly to things. He doesn't seem as cool, certainly as Jules. <laughs> Yeah, I and mean, he Jules is a cool motherfucker. seems a little over his head around Mia. I don't know. He just, he's not as cool as you would think on the surface. That's true. This character of yeah. a gangster being played by a 40-year-old John Travolta who is still kind of like the Travolta of the late 70s. You know, you're thinking like, okay, this guy must be cool, but I don't know. He does a lot of uncool shit, <laughs> right. especially in the upcoming situation at Jimmy's house with the wolf and everything. 
he's just like not that cool. So right. it's possible yeah, he you. would do something fucking stupid, like shoot he was Marvin on purpose. Right. He was the nerdier, clumsier Vega brother. Yeah, which is weird. You do kind of think that like Vic is like the cooler one. Yeah, and yeah. would probably bully him. Right. Because Vic yeah. is like just a psychopath. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who have seen Reservoir Dogs, Mr. Blonde. Okay. They have all this blood and brains and shit all over the car. <laughs> driving it through Los Angeles. They're just Angeles. driving through the valley. They're like, what the <laughs> yeah. fuck are we going to do? I don't know anybody in the valley. Yeah, Marcellus doesn't have any safe houses in the valley. So Jules has a friend or partner or something. I don't really know what exactly their relationship is named Jimmy. Now, Jimmy is played by Quentin Tarantino himself. We talked about in part one that Tarantino almost played Lance, ends up playing Jimmy. Steve Buscemi was maybe going to play Jimmy at one point. Didn't happen. And you certainly feel like the Jimmy monologue stands out today. I'm sure it did at the time, too, but it obviously like... But not as much. Yeah. I think it's interesting if you go back and you read all the reviews that came out at the time, not a lot of people mentioned it. Right. It just like was not... I mean, yeah, some people did. Obviously, Spike Lee had a big problem with it. Oh, yeah. Other people did, too. But it just wasn't as big of a deal as it would be now, But the thing is, I think, and it's weird to think of, like, things regressing this way. I I don't know. I feel like you could watch a scene and be like, wow, this character saying these things is horrible. I know. I know. And this I I don't know what happened to that. Like, why why are we not able to recognize that i know it ties in with a lot of the the criticism about the brad pitt character in once upon a time in hollywood oh i know now where people are just you can't have characters do bad things anymore i guess like even if they're supposed to be bad right it just it's very crazy i don't get it but having said that it it, this may be a little over the top it's insane yes to have it be tarantino himself saying these lines is insane right I don't know what my thought process was when I was younger. I guess I just didn't really know what to make of this. It was shocking, but, you know, <laughs> sure, I'm not absolutely an African-American, so I wasn't, right. like, offended. I was just kind of like, whoa. It is that's over wild. the top and something that you're not used to hearing. <laughs> yeah, and I do think if you're going to be fair and, and critical of Tarantino, I mean, you could say that this almost feels like showing off. Like, look how bad I can be. Like, look at I what I can that. do. I agree with that. Is there so any much. other reason for this? It's so bizarre that Jimmy's saying all this stuff while Samuel L. Jackson is standing right there who is supposed to be, like, his friend. And he's married to an African-American True. woman as well. Right, and I which guess also I think feels, seems like it's all supposed to be part of it. it. But that also feels weird, though. That feels like, hey, look at me. I have the N-word pass. I can uh, say well, whatever true. I want. Yeah, I, and it feels like almost like it's throwing it in your face a little bit. Now, I don't know if that – I'm not saying that was their intention. I think it's crazy to even imply for one second that Quentin Tarantino is a racist. I think he's like the furthest thing from a racist. Right. There's just no way you write the movie Jackie Django Brown. Unchained. Or Django Unchained. But like those characters in all of these movies, he, he writes such prominent roles for African Americans, more so than – I would say almost any other white filmmaker uh, yeah. consistently for 30 years now almost. I mean, other uh, than Reservoir Dogs, which yeah. is a bit of a beige fest, True. <laughs> it's very yeah. prominently featuring African-Americans. Now, oddly enough, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood doesn't really have a lot of diversity, but I think that was representative of what Hollywood was like in 1969. Uh, sure. I and mean, I think there's again, almost a commentary I, I, I of that. I still get back to this thing where it's like, I mean, I don't know how many episodes we've talked about it on. 
it's okay to make different movies about different things. Right. Uh, yeah. And you know I agree with that, right. too. Yeah. But I think that Tarantino has changed enough to realize that this is a bit much. He would not have this scene in a movie. Now. I think so. Yeah. I think he is. I don't think he bows to public pressure. I don't think he goes along with the, whatever the status quo is. He doesn't play the game. PC he doesn't. Culture. He goes the way he wants to go. He does what he wants to do. And I don't think he would necessarily follow the rules of whatever this PC culture is. But I just think that he's more aware now that having characters that aren't completely clear as the villain saying stuff like this is a bad idea yeah and he had jennifer jason lee say stuff like this and walton goggins was racist too in but like it's of a different time different era Yeah, and those characters are more clearly defined in a certain way right Like you understand who those characters are whereas and there's ambiguity to jimmy there's no good guys in the hateful eight by the way yeah, I know. That's why they're called right. the Hate Flate. Yeah. But in this movie, I think people, not myself necessarily, but I do think people who would be critical of it would say, like, well, you're positioning certain characters as being cool. And you're positioning talking like this as being cool because the characters are cool. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but there is a little bit of validity to it. And I just don't think he would do it like that now. Yeah. And I, there is something about it that just feels gratuitous. Like, yes like even him being this angry about it i mean obviously (laughs) jules has put him in a bad situation well that play that fits in with everything though like the mundane realities of these things like true he's worried that his wife is going to be mad and divorce him which is not something you would see in this kind of a story and i think that's funny really funny and in fact i love that i love the whole bonnie situation and the idea behind her just being like (laughs) so scary to him or whatever or I'm going to get so, a fucking divorce. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Why does he even care the race of the dead body that's basically He headless? doesn't. It's, right. Th- that's the whole thing. That's partially what's offensive about the line is it's supposed to be funny. Yeah. That's ultimately why it's such a problem. Because right. there's a lot of other racism throughout this movie. Oh, Even yeah. in the opening scene, Tim Roth says a lot of slurs. Sure, sure. And says different shit. Right. And other characters throughout the movie have done it. But this scene stands out because that is specifically seems like it's crafted to be funny. That is a joke, the right. way that it's set up. If you it's switch in the funny. word yeah. body instead of the N-word, like dead body storage or whatever... Right. It makes just as much sense, yeah. but it's not as funny. Okay. And that's why it's a problem, because it's set up to be funny. And you're just like, well, what is the punchline? The fact that he's saying the N-word? And it's like, yeah. well, kind of. I guess, yeah. Or at least I, I don't really find it particularly funny. It's certainly extreme. Yeah, I do think that people that watched this movie back then probably it thought it was like funny. like a shock value. I listened to a clip of... Tarantino talking with Jamie Foxx on, I think, Jamie Foxx's radio show, probably oh, wow. you know, around the time of Django Unchained or something. No idea Jamie Foxx had a radio show. I think it was on, like, Sirius. Oh, wow. And he's talking about his upbringing. He's talking about the people that his mother dated when she was divorced and the time that he spent at, like, an all-black high school, similar to Howard Stern, or yep. his mother's black boyfriends who would take him to see like black exploitation movies at the drive-in yeah, yeah. and stuff like that and just the culture that he was surrounded by as a youth and i think like once you get a little bit of context about his life what he's interested in the type of movies he's always seen the type of people he was around growing up the way they talked the way that 
he claims that he was allowed to talk around these people at various points in his life, like in high school or whatever. I think you can understand a little bit where some of this comes from, but those interviews and that backstory isn't attached to this, especially in 94 when people don't even really know anything about him. And then you're just like, whoa, (laughs) what is this? I mean, who would be expected to know that context though? I mean, no one. And this is, I'm talking about an interview that was over a decade after Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a wild thing to throw in there. Absolutely. Of course, if it was Steve Buscemi, it would still be problematic, but it would not even seem as bad. The fact Steve that it's Buscemi him seems even worse. I think Steve Buscemi could have been a better version of this character like without this monologue. Like, I, I don't think it's necessary for the movie. Now, I don't think it needs to be something that we need to go back and be like, this is horrible. Quint no, Tier of Tier course not. You know, I think like... With all things, I mean, this movie's now 25 years old. It's important not it to hasn't censor well. the past yeah. because I think leaving the past as is and not overthinking it is a good way to know how far we've come and to mark progress and to not let history repeat itself. And I think that if you constantly try to censor the past, you try to act like these things didn't happen or act like they should be held to the standards of today, you're not actually going to change then because these things will be circular and cyclical and we will just end up getting nowhere. You need to mark your progress. And if Tarantino, as a filmmaker and as a writer, would not write this scene now, 25 years later, then that means there's been progress. And like I learned, hey, maybe my intention wasn't bad. Maybe I'm not a racist person. Maybe this seemed okay. But I learned, maybe I saw some different perspectives. I learned some things. And it's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't make this a joke, this kind of stuff. Not because of me and not because of a lot of people watching it, but some people watching it then will think this is okay and cool to talk like this. The more you know. And I'm never for censorship, but I'm just saying, like, that's good then to see that 25 years of being a filmmaker, you would then not make a scene like this. Yeah, I mean, these are all great points. Uh, You know, even to take the dumbed-down version of that, like, I mean, the movie is what it is. It's just, like, as time goes on, if you go back and look at something and be like, I-, I don't really think this would work now. I mean, I think you're always going to have some version of that. Yeah. It's funny, too, because I'm not going to put a clip of this into this episode. So if you've never seen Pulp Fiction, you're like, right. what are they talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, let's weird... just say there's a lot of N-words in this scene right. that are delivered by white people very casually. Yeah, yeah. And in a way that is very shocking now. And, and probably more shocking in 2018 right. than it was in 94. It was, I would say, an 8 out of 10 on the shock scale in 94. Now it's like a 12 out of 10 now, <laughs> yeah. where you're just like, whoa. Yeah, I mean, if you tried to put this into a movie now, I mean, you would be kicked out of Hollywood in <laughs> oh, two for seconds. Sure. And maybe the country. <laughs> but let's get back to the story at hand, which is the Bonnie thing. They've brought a headless corpse in a car into his garage in the middle of a neighborhood, in the middle of a day. His wife works a night shift and is coming home soon. <laughs> right. and I, like, They're I covered love, in blood uh, and grains. Like, Jules' familiarity with Jimmy's relationship with Bonnie. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> It's funny how you're introduced to this because you go from the car to the first thing you see is them washing their hands in the bathroom and him warning Vincent, like being like, we need to be careful with this whole Jimmy situation or we're going to bring this thing to a head. Right. And Vincent, of course, is like an oaf. Oh, yeah. He's just like dopey. 
not washing his hands thoroughly enough, getting blood, <laughs> blood all over all their over white the bathroom towels. towels. <laughs> Jules flipping out about it. Then Jules is calling Marcellus. This is another time we get to see Mia very briefly with like a yes, a swimming cap on, which is kind of a weird look. Marcellus's way of handling it is to send the wolf. You got to appreciate what an explosive element this Bonnie situation is. I mean, she comes home from a hard day's work, finds a bunch of gangsters in the kitchen doing a bunch of gangster shit. Ain't no telling what she's liable to do. Yeah, I've grasped that, Jules. All I'm doing is contemplating the ifs. I don't want to hear about no motherfucking ifs. All I want to hear from your ass is, you ain't got no problem, Jules. I'm on the motherfucker. Go back in there, chill them niggas out, and wait for the cavalry, which should be coming directly. You ain't got no problem, Jules. I'm on the motherfucker. Go back in there and chill them niggas out, and wait for the wolf, which should be coming directly. You sending the wolf? No, you feel better, motherfucker? Shit, Negro, that's all you had to say. Now, we could probably do a whole episode on what is going on with the wolf at like 7.30 in the morning yeah, or I know, 8 it's in the morning. Yeah, it's this weird thing. It's like, it's he in like a hotel room? It, it's like it's a, like a, it looks like a hotel type suite or something, right. but there's <laughs> a lot like, of other people. And like some sort of casino? <laughs> like... Well, I, if you listen to like what the person in the background says, is like we'll start the bidding or something. It's okay, like some, yeah, like a horse racing thing. I don't know. Like, like is there an auction right. going on? I'm not sure what's happening. He's in a tuxedo. It's like eight in the morning. I don't know where he is, who he's with. It's just like Maynard and Zed. It's like it's this whole other thing. <laughs> right. Like, he's what got is a whole this? life. But the Bonnie situation, of course, is necessary to the film. Not only for the humor of them trying to like dance around a, an angry right. wife, yes. but you got to bring Harvey Cattell into the movie, and this is like a great character. But I like, told this you being the specific reason to do it just works <laughs> yeah. and is funny. I told you before we started recording that I had been watching a lot of Seinfelds recently, oh, yeah. and there's like that one where they have the muffin tops, and they don't know what to do with all those muffin stumps. Yes, and so the little button, like the closing scene like the last little scene after the last commercial break was like they call in the cleaner and it's like a parody of pulp fiction and it's newman and he's like gonna <laughs> he comes in with like a briefcase yeah. so it's full of milk to like eat all of these <laughs> muffin stumps <laughs> and he says to like mr Lippman because it's like mr Lippman and elaine are like doing this and he's like if i'm kurt i apologize <laughs> and it's just it's so great it's one of the great seinfeld parodies there's so many good ones but that one it just stuck out to me because we were preparing to do oh, the yeah. Pulp Fiction episode. So he races over in this like Acura NSX or some you know version of like this domestic race car and calm, cool, collected, ready to clean this shit up. Okay, first thing, you two, take the body, stick it in the trunk. Now, Jimmy, this looks to be a pretty domesticated house. That would lead me to believe that in the garage you're under the sink, you got a bunch of cleaners and cleansers and shit like that. Yeah, yeah, Mister Wolf, under the sink. Good. I need you two folks to do is take those cleaning products and clean the inside of the car. I'm talking fast, fast, fast. You need to go in the back seat, scoop up all those little pieces of brain and skull. Get it out of there. Wipe down the upholstery. Now, when it comes to upholstery, you don't need to be spick and span. You don't need to eat off it. Just give it a good once over. What you need to take care of are the really messy parts. The pools of blood that I've collected, you got to soak that shit up. Now, Jimmy, we need to raid your linen closet. I need blankets, I need comforters, I need quilts, I need bedspreads. The thicker the better, the darker the better. No whites. Can't use them. We need to camouflage the interior of the car. 
We're gonna line the front seat and the back seat and the floorboards with quilts and blankets. So if a cop stops us and starts sticking his big snout in the car, the subterfuge won't last. But at a glance, the car will appear to be normal. Jimmy, lead the way. Boys, get to work. Please would be nice. Come again? I said a please would be nice. Get it straight, Buster. I'm not here to say please. I'm here to tell you what to do. And if self-preservation is an instinct you possess, you better fucking do it and do it quick. I'm here to help. If my help's not appreciated, lots of luck, gentlemen. No, 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 Mr. Wolf. It ain't like that. Your help is definitely appreciated. Mr. Wolf, listen. I don't mean disrespect, okay? I respect you. I just don't like people barking orders at me. That's all. If I'm curt with you, it's because time is a factor. I think fast, I talk fast, and I need you guys to act fast if you want to get out of this. So pretty please, with sugar on top, clean the fucking car. He's like, all right, we got to take care of the car. We got to pick up all the brains and mop up all the pools of blood and all <laughs> yeah. this shit. We got to get rid of this body. We're going to put it in the trunk. We got to get these two idiots washed off, which involves them stripping down in the backyard with like a hose. Oh, yeah. And, of course, the replacement clothes, which are Jimmy's clothes. Jimmy, quite a wardrobe he's got. I mean, he's given away a lot of blankets here. That's I don't true. think he wants to give away good clothes. Right. But he makes fun of the clothes with the wolf. And, and Jules is just like, these are your clothes, yeah, motherfucker. Right. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, he's like, they look like dorks. And then this obviously is the explanation for where those clothes came from when we see them walk into the bar when Butch is there yeah, yeah. talking to Marcellus. Which you wouldn't think they would feel all that great about going to a diner with these clothes. No, but they're hungry after the disposal. This is a big morning. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> this turned into Trust a whole me. thing. And I do love breakfast, so. Harvey Cattell is not in the movie much, but it's a memorable part. Yeah. It's great. It's a lot of fun. I... I he has a lot of great interactions with Vincent, who just can't handle himself. So he's another cast member from Reservoir Dogs that pops up. Yes. I'm disappointed, much like Buscemi, that he hasn't been in another Tarantino movie. Yeah. There were a lot of rumors that he was going to be in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and that never came to fruition. Disappointed. Did he film anything that was cut? I don't know. When we talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we're going to talk about the deluxe version that might be coming out at some point. Oh, wow. <laughs> That we're already aware of. Well, there's rumors. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Is there anything else we need to talk about here? They they take it to a special place. Like uh, I mean, I a, a guy sympathetic to their cause to get rid of the car and the love body and everything. When like Samuel Jackson is doing like the narration or whatever, at least I think it's still him talking at this point. When they do that scene that doesn't actually happen of Bonnie walking in and them carrying the body and yeah. just like freezing. I love that part so much. Yeah, and that was a part that they just came up with. Yeah. It almost feels out of place in the movie because there's nothing else like that. Yeah, like a hypothetical like, right. goof. Yeah, but it, it's just so funny. Yeah, just like Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, and Quentin carrying a body through the <laughs> kitchen in the this classy looking woman dressed up like a nurse coming home and just like turning the lights on in the kitchen. They're just standing there like, you know, they've been caught with their hand in the cookie jar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a, I think it's a deleted part from Reservoir Dogs where Chris Penn talks about calling a nurse he knows. Oh, really? And the nurse is named Bonnie. Gotcha. There's That's the thing for people All not familiar shared with, universe stuff. with Quentin's stuff. It's a lot of shared universe characters, like Alabama's mentioned in Reservoir Dogs. She's from True Romance, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there is crossover between Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. They're both oh, yeah. crime stories that take place in L.A., and 
the Vega brothers and everything else. I always thought like, well, maybe the wolf is Harvey Keitel's character from Reservoir Dogs. Could I be. don't know. Yeah. I don't think so, but who knows? Not going to rule it out. <laughs> anyway, they take it to that place. Joe, who runs like the uh, yeah. car place. I don't even know what they call that. Like a towing yard or something. <laughs> right, yeah. It's like the thing out of Breaking Bad that those guys work at. Yeah, that was Dick Miller playing Joe or whatever. He's cut out. But his daughter is played by Julia Sweeney, who I think in the same year was it playing It's Pat. <laughs> you know, the SNL movie? Uh, I don't. The androgynous, so they can't tell if it's a boy or a girl. It's mm. like so insanely politically incorrect in today's climate. Yeah, yeah, but it was I, a whole character based around, familiar, but I can't is it a man or a woman? Pat. Yeah, I have it on Blu-ray. Okay, one of uh, these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kathy Griffin is in it, too. Okay. I don't know. She had some sort of a relationship, I think, with Quinn. I don't know if it was just like they were friends or I don't really know what that was. But... Yeah, that seems like a, a friendship that would exist at a certain time. And then like you'd look back and be like, yeah, you know, <laughs> we were trying to say something there, but really we shouldn't have ever <laughs> gotten that friendship going. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, she's, she was on SNL for a long time. That's a good point. <laughs> she's still in stuff now. Yeah. I think she was in like Brooklyn Nine-Nine or something. Anyway, she's dating Harvey Keitel, which I always think is, like, really funny. Yeah, that's true. Just because, like, she seems way younger than him, and it's such an odd pairing of people for some reason. I don't really know. I don't know. I don't really know what to make of it. It's just, like, a goofy... I mean... It's just like anything else in this movie where you're just, like... You're so far in the movie now that it's just, like, you're just sort of accepting whatever's happening. Yeah, after hearing Jimmy drop all those N-bombs, and then you see that his wife is black, you're just like, okay, I don't know what's going on anymore. So which finally brings us to the end of the movie with Jules and Vincent going for breakfast. They're having another long-winded conversation. This discussion where Jules is now convinced he's retiring. They still have the briefcase with them at this point. They're going to take it to Marcellus. Jules is going to retire from the life because of this miracle that happened. His eyes have been opened. (laughs) And you could make the case that because he does this, that's why Vincent is killed. He's getting a later. little preachy. Yeah. He's getting a little preachy. You know, I'm just like. He's been a bad man, and now he's coming to the light. He's, yep, that's he's, right. He doesn't want to be a criminal anymore. Born he again. realizes that this is not. Not the life. Not the life you should be living. Why do you think this results in Vincent's death? Because then he's not there he's with left him? on his own, and he's an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's taking he shits, leaving the gun in the like kitchen. direct him. But he's reading the same book. When they're in the diner, He Vincent goes to take a shit, and they show him on the toilet at one point reading a book, and he's reading right. that same book yeah. at Butch's apartment later. Anyway, the first time you see this, you may have forgotten about Honey Bunny and Pumpkin right. by this point. Until well, yeah. midway through, while Vincent yeah. and Jules are talking, you hear Tim Roth yell out, Garcon. Oh, yeah. And you can even faintly hear the waitress say, Garcon meets boy. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love that what Amanda Plummer says is different in the beginning than it is at the end. It's just one of those weird flourishes that Tarantino does, like Spell Bastards Wrong, which I know is the obvious one. Right. But like in the opening of the film, she says, I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you. And then in this ending part, she says, I'll execute all of you motherfuckers or something like that. It's just different. Yeah. She just says different words. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know what to say about that. So they go through the whole process of robbing the restaurant, which we didn't see in the beginning. We just saw right. them hop up on the table. And we yell. cut out to the rest of the film, and now we've returned. Yes. They're rounding up the 
people who work there. They're rounding up all the customers. They want to take all the wallets. Again, I mean, is this like, is he oblivious to the world around him? I know he does come out, but it seems like he comes out pretty far into this. need to finish. Okay, yeah, I get it. (laughs) That I can buy him not hearing more than the thing at the apartment. It does sound like a lot of commotion, though. People yelling. That's true, but we don't really see where the bathroom is. It could be tucked all, right. all the way around a corner somewhere. I don't <laughs> That's know. That's true. There could be music, air conditioning blowing <laughs> right, or something. Yeah. Who knows? This, of course, all builds to one of Tarantino's favorite things to do, the Mexican standoff. Oh, yeah. Reservoir Dogs has it. Inglorious Bastards has right. it. A lot of his, I'm sure Hateful Eight has several. It's just <laughs> yeah. a thing he likes to throw in there where... Tim Roth's character, I don't really know what his real name is. I know, like, we find out Honey Bunny is Yolanda. Yeah, and I think I, they do say his real name. Well, maybe not. <laughs> well, Jules keeps calling him Ringo because <laughs> he's English, that's I guess. True. Jules puts his wallet in, no problem. He's just like, all right. But he's got his hand on his gun the whole time because I think he knows where this is going. He's going to yep. ask about the briefcase, which he does. And Jules is like, I can't give you this briefcase, it doesn't belong to me. It's in a case. My boss's dirty laundry. Your boss makes you do his laundry? When he wants it clean. Sounds like a shit job. Funny, I was thinking the same thing. Open it. Afraid I can't do that. I didn't hear you? Yes, you did. What's going on? Looks like we got a vigilante in our midst. Shoot him in the face. I hate to shatter your ego, but this ain't the first time I've had a gun pointed at me. You don't take your fucking end off that case, it'll be your last. Stop causing problems! You'll get us all killed. Give him what you got and get him out of here. Shut the fuck up, fat man. This ain't none of your goddamn business. Be cool, honey bunny. Be cool. No problem. I got it under control. Now, I'm going to count to three. If you don't open that case, I'm going to unload in your fucking face. We clear? One. Two. Three. Okay, Ringo. You win. It's yours. Open it. Wait, what is it? What is it? Is that what I think it is? Mm hmm. God damn it, what is it? <laughs> you let him go! You let him go! Let go of it! Tell that bitch to be cool! I'm gonna kill you! Say bitch, be cool! Say bitch, be cool! Tell that fucking bitch to chill! Be cool! Chill that fucking bitch out! Chill out, honey bunny! Chill! Just chill out, honey bunny! Alright, now tell her it's gonna be alright! It's gonna be alright! Promise her! I promise! Tell her to chill! Just chill out, honey bunny! Alright, now tell me your name! Yolanda! Alright, now Yolanda! We're not going to do anything stupid, are we? Don't you hurt him! Nobody's going to hurt anybody. We're all going to be like three little Fonzies here. And what's Fonzie like? Come on, Yolanda, what's Fonzie like? Cool. What? Cool. Correct the mundo. And that's what we're going to be. We're going to be cool. Now, Ringo, I'm going to count to three. And when I count three, I want you to let go of your gun, put your palms flat on the table, and sit your ass down. But when you do it, you do it cool. You ready? One, 
two, three. Okay, now you let him go. Yolanda, I thought you were going to be cool. Now, when you yell at me, it makes me nervous. And when I get nervous, I get scared. And when motherfuckers get scared, that's when motherfuckers accidentally get shot. Just know, you hurt him, you die. Well, that seems to be the situation. But I don't want that. And you don't want that. And Ringo here definitely doesn't want that. So let's see what we can do. Tim Roth sticks the gun in his face. They pop the briefcase open. He sees what's in it. We don't. (laughs) Correct, yeah. We never do. His distraction at what's in the case allows Jules to reach up and grab his arm, pull him towards him. Of course, he had a gun next to him the whole time. Now he's got the gun on Ringo. That's right. Which causes Yolanda, Honey Bunny, to freak out. Oh, yeah. She this whole, cool. All of this exchange the between the three of them to fall. is so funny right. to me. I know. It goes on for so long, too. <laughs> Where he's telling Ringo to tell things to Honey Bunny. Oh, I know, yeah. He's like, tell that bitch to be cool. It just goes on forever. Yeah. And he's like, we're going to be like three Fonzies. Now what's Fonzie? Like? <laughs> right. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it's just a great scene. And then eventually, as this standoff is happening, then Vincent comes out, and that causes Yolanda to freak. Right. But Jules is yelling at Vincent. Vincent, like, back the fuck off. He ain't going to do a goddamn thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Samuel Jackson just has such good lines in this movie. Yeah, and this whole sequence is great. Now, he lost the Best Supporting Actor, I believe, to... I think Martin Landau, maybe? I don't remember. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was just one of those things where, of course, as the Oscars often do, they give it to an older person of on their course. way out. It's one of the most memorable performances. It's a star-making performance. It, it propelled him to be in so many huge movies after this and have this enormous... never-ending career it's really the defining part because he just dominates this scene he just keeps talking and talking he has so much because he he once again delivers this fictionalized version of a bible verse that they created and but he does it now in a normal voice this is just another like long sequence so like well paced now here's the situation normally both your asses would be dead as fucking fried chicken but you happen to pull this shit while I'm in a transitional period and I don't want to kill you. I want to help you. But I can't give you this case because it don't belong to me. Besides, I've been through too much shit over this case this morning to just hand it over to your dumb ass. Vincent! <laughs> Be cool! Yolanda! It's cool, baby! It's cool! We still just talking. Come on, point the gun at me! Point the gun at me! There you go. Now, Vincent, you just hang back. And don't do a goddamn thing. Tell him we're still cool. Still cool, honey bunny. How we doing, baby? I, I gotta go pee. I'm gonna go home. Just hang in there, baby. You're doing great. I'm proud of you. And Ringo's proud of you. It's almost over. Tell her you're proud of her. Proud of you, honey bunny. I love you. I love you too, honey bunny. Now, I want you to go in that bag and find my wallet. Which one is it? It's the one that says bad motherfucker.
That's my bad motherfucker. Open it up. Take out the money. Count it. How much is that? $1,500. Okay, put it in your pocket. It's yours. Now, with the rest of those wallets in the register, that makes this a pretty successful little score, huh? Jules, you give that fucking Nimrod $1,500 and I'll shoot him on general principle. No, Yolanda, Yolanda, he ain't gonna do a goddamn motherfucking thing. Vince, shut the fuck up! Shut up! Come on, Yolanda, stay with me, baby. Now, I ain't giving it to him, Vincent. I'm buying something for my money. You wanna know what I'm buying, Ringo? What? Your life. I'm giving you that money so I don't have to kill your ass. You read the Bible, Ringo? Not regularly, no. Well, there's this passage I got memorized. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you. I've been saying that shit for years. And if you heard it, that meant your ass. I never gave much thought to what it meant. I just thought it was some cold-blooded shit to say to a motherfucker before I popped a cap in his ass. I saw some shit this morning made me think twice. See, now I'm thinking, maybe it means you're the evil man and I'm the righteous man. And Mr. Nine Millimeter here, he's the shepherd protecting my righteous ass in the valley of darkness. Or it could mean you're the righteous man and I'm the shepherd. And it's the world that's evil and selfish. Now, I'd like that. But that shit ain't the truth. The truth is, you're the weak. And I am the tyranny of evil men. But I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. At first, you're like, okay what is where is this going and then he has like all these different theories about i love how he's like <laughs> he's definitely a he has spiritual... all these different theories of what he thinks right. that these words mean what difference does it make what they mean to you like why he keeps saying like what i think they mean it's like well what don't you mean like what they just mean in general <laughs> and he's like implying it directly to this situation with him and tim roth's character and tim roth's character is just like what i don't yeah. know what you're talking about but the end result is I'm trying to be a better man now and I'm not going to kill you. Right. He I, gives him the money from the wallet. Yeah, he makes him take his wallet out of the bag. Of course, we have the great moment where he's like, which one's yours? And he, <laughs> The one that's this bad motherfucker on it. Right, yeah, obviously, <laughs> which is great. You love when he pulls it out. He actually owns a wallet that says bad motherfucker. <laughs> I mean, what a character this guy is. Yeah. Gives him like 1700 bucks or something. I think it's like 1500 Okay, yeah. yeah. Which, of course, infuriates Vincent. Right. <laughs> yeah. If you give that Nimrod $1,500, I'm going to kill him on principle. Yeah. Which, of course, upsets Yolanda even more. Right. <laughs> he ain't going to do a goddamn thing. <laughs> Just he's yelling.
Yeah, and he's like, you can't have the briefcase, though. <laughs> I would give it to you if I could, but it doesn't belong to me. Yep. And that's the end of that. And he lets them leave. And so and just walk out Honey them. Bunny and Pumpkin get to live, and they walk out. The music starts from underneath, and Vincent's like, I think we should get out of here, because finally they're like, well, there might be cops at some point. Well, yeah. I, mean, I know we haven't seen any. <laughs> right. I think we should get out of here. And also, like, Samuel Jackson has almost been on this, like, other level. It's like he's, like... I don't know, on a high or something, the way he's been like going through all this. And then it's almost like he's snapped back to reality when he's like, we should get out of here. He's like, yeah, you're probably right. (laughs) (laughs) And it is the perfect ending, thanks to the audition from Samuel Jackson, which we talked about, where they didn't really know how they were going to end the movie until he did this in the audition, this whole scene. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is where it's going to end. And it's it perfect. is a good ending. It's kind of fun that you end. It's almost like Vincent's alive again. Yeah, they just you walk know? out in those right. ridiculous outfits and tuck the guns into their beach shorts or whatever they're <laughs> yeah, wearing. <right. laughs> and they walk out of there. So that's Pulp Fiction. Holy shit. Yeah. What a run this was. Two parts talking about one of the greatest films of all time, one of our favorite films. We're not done, though. It's hard to say what my favorite movie of all time is. It changes. This this has definitely been number one at various points. Absolutely, for me, too. And it's such an important movie, and I've seen it so many times. You almost take it for granted at a certain point. It's probably why we didn't even get to it until episode 150, because you got to just take it for granted. Right. And I know that it's one of those movies that gets the negative connotation of like movie bros just like Fight Club or Big Lebowski or Christopher Nolan movies or whatever th- th- that they're so loved well, by I know. everybody but usually that, it's because those movies are really good yeah though. there's yeah. eventually there just is a backlash to it especially since it's a movie that people who love movies and know about good movies know about great movies will love but it's also an easy movie for people that are dumb to love too sure and absolutely. so that's why it gets tied in with right you know, because obviously the same could be said for like Big Lebowski, which is like a brilliant genius oh, movie. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of dunces like it too. For sure. And there's nothing you can do about that. It's just the way it is. <laughs> right. Drive is kind of the same way. You yeah. know, there's a lot of these movies that get lumped into that, but there's no denying it. It's an undeniable movie. There's nothing like it, and there really hasn't been anything that's really replicated how. I mean, this is always sat out there crazy for ones that we were gonna do. At some point, we knew we were going to get to it. It's like once you are done with it, you kind of are like, okay, when are we going to get to this level again? You know what I mean? Like this level of movie. Never. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, obviously we have a million other things planned. Exactly. And we like to sometimes do things that are more off the beaten path that we only like. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Who knows? I mean, more people will probably download that I Know What You Did Last Summer episode than they will these two parts. Yeah, because I mean, anytime they I see can it's never a two-parter, they're just like... No well, yeah, the, A, the fact that it's two parts turns people off, but B, I can never predict what's going to be popular. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I'm always stunned by things that don't shoot up there, and right? then other things that do. It's just, I don't know. <laughs> what's next? So Let's talk doing... about the overall rankings for Tarantino. Okay. I'm going to start okay. with number nine. We're going by his nine films. Now, he includes Kill Bill as one. That counts as one movie in his mind. When they advertise Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and they call it the ninth film, yeah, that's why. Because gotcha. Kill Bill is only one. And he says that he's going to be done directing films after 10. I mean, hopefully that's not the case. I know most people out there don't want it to be, but yeah, he I seems adamant. It's he's hard been to say. saying it for a long time, and he still says it. And he says that he'll still 
write things and be involved in things. And he's saying that potentially the Star Trek thing could be a loophole that doesn't count. (laughs) I don't know. So if is that thing is that it seems like it's still happening. Wow. I don't know if he's writing the script. He's doing the story. And he's going to direct it, but somebody else is doing the script, I think. But it's not counting as a... And it is going to be R-rated, apparently. Wow. I don't know. Who with knows what's going to end up happening with that? the that they've been using? I don't know. Okay. I think they're at a point where that franchise is kind of stalled out, and so they're willing to, like... Do something Yeah, weird. Do, just do something crazy with right. it and be like, okay. All right, number nine for me is Death Proof. Okay. I like it. It's fun. All together as a part of Grindhouse, I enjoy it. I mean, it's really long, everything all together, so yeah, I don't yeah. know how often I'm going to sit there and rewatch it all. I saw Grindhouse in the theater, loved it immediately, hated that it bombed. It's really Tarantino's only failure, really, Yeah, was that whole project. They didn't really know how to market it. It was way too long to have right. a lot of showings. I actually I love Death Proof, and I always feel like it's kind of underrated. You're probably right. What's your number nine? I have uh, Hateful Eight as <laughs> my number nine. That would be number my number eight. Yeah, yeah. The Hateful Eight. I mean, I liked it. It was a fun experience in the theater to go see, obviously. I mean, it's beautifully shot. It has that cool NEO, what is it, Maricone? Maricone score. Yeah. Yeah, it's very gorgeous. And you wonder why, if they were going to have all this 70 millimeter stuff, like, why not have more of it outdoors? <laughs> right. <laughs> a lot of I it know. is indoors, yeah, which yeah. is strange. It's awesome. It's the one time in his filmography where I'm like, does this need to be this long? Yeah, I'm with you. And it's probably the one that I'm very rarely do I think to myself I want to rewatch it. Yeah, it, it probably has the least rewatchability, even though I have Death Proof behind it. Death Proof is more rewatchable because it's so short. Right, true. Yeah. It's <laughs> half as long. Yeah, exactly. What's your number eight? I have minus uh, eight eight. Django Unchained next. Okay, that's my number seven. Yeah, it's just, again, it was really cool the first time I saw it. It's long. I mean, I'm not as into, like, Western feels in general. Yeah. So, like, when I'm thinking about things that I can kind of vibe with, you know, modern day made spaghetti Western isn't really exactly up my alley. But, I I mean, it's really cool. I think there's a lot of awesome stuff in it. I think it probably, again, similarly to Hateful Eight, could probably have been edited a little stricter and cut some of the, the fat out of it. Yeah, yeah. And you'd have something really strong. It's one of the wildest DiCaprio performances in his career. It's true. It feels that like... That character is crazy. Right, yeah. And it's, like it's, such a crazy villain for him to play. Yeah, it's very different from the type of things that he would usually play. It's similar to the rumor that Tarantino wanted Tom Cruise to play Charles Manson in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I don't know if that's even true, but uh, yeah. where you're just like, wow, I don't know if he would ever even do that because right. he's never really done anything quite like it. Yeah, I think it's cool. I think there's a little bit more rewatchability than Hateful Eight. I think just so, because too. It's, there's a, it, it's one of those things where they go from place to place. There's a and lot there's of different characters. there's a little bit characters. more of an adventure story to it. Really it's, like the Christoph Waltz character in it. It's probably the one that I need to rewatch the most. Yeah, that's probably true about me as well. I've only seen it, I think, maybe twice. And I, I think I'd like to revisit it. So that's my number seven, your number eight. Now what's your number seven? Kill Bill. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is the first big discrepancy. Really? Yeah, no. <laughs> so I like Kill Bill part one and part two. Well, I guess two. it's not the first because you somehow have not gotten to Death Proof yet. Yeah, yeah. no, I I love Death Proof. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I, I don't know, I... I mean, I love it. It's I love all the Quentin Tarantino movies, but it's another one that I'm never really... 
I mean, I, I don't know when the last time I watched it was. I rewatched both parts probably less than a year ago, and it went way up. Oh, really? Okay. Well, hey, maybe I have one of those moments. My only complaint is the bizarre, and some people love this part, but I just don't like the like the anime. I hate that part. Yeah, I just think that takes me out of it. Now that movie is possibly his most experimental. I mean, it is so many different things thrown in there. Even like the part leading up to the showdown with Lucy Liu, where she kills all the whatever Asian gangster group crazy idiots yeah yeah I, I don't know it's just it was cartoony and silly to me which i know he does cartoony violence at times but i don't know that whole sequence took me out of it a little bit i think there's really good stuff in it i kind of like part two more than part one yeah i think that's kind of an unpopular take but i think when i first saw them both in the theater coming out of two i think i liked two more for some reason but i watched them both consecutively when I watched them recently, and I, I would as love meant to, to be see watched. the whole thing edited together as one thing. Yeah, how long would that be? I don't know. I just appreciate it more, I think, now than I did when it came out. By I the way, when it, we talk about these two Pulp Fiction episodes, it's really one episode. <laughs> well, we counted them as two okay. in the opening yeah, and yeah. In the titles. <laughs> All right, so that's your number seven, correct? That's right. All right, my number six is Reservoir Dogs. That is my number six. Okay, so we're on the same page there. Yeah, Reservoir Dogs is a classic. That actually slid on my most recent rewatch. Not that I didn't enjoy it, but you see the yeah. you know you see the cracks a little bit more now when you compare it to his later stuff. It's For not sure. as polished as everything else. It's cool because it's like definitely a cool indie movie. The first time you see it, and you know I was probably still in high school or something when I first they, saw it. You're just like blown away, right? And they accomplish a lot with like obviously like a limited scope. Yes, super low budget, really fun performances from like Harvey Keitel, oh, yeah. C. Buscemi, Tim Roth's accent not always strong in it, but whatever, you know what? I, it's not something I noticed when I was like 18. Oh yeah, I mean it's something I notice more now for sure. I'm with and you. like we said, pro- probably the best Madsen's ever been. <laughs> I would say like peak Madsen oh, yeah. performance. Right. Yeah, I mean it's a cool movie. If we would have done this list like six months ago, I would have, in my head, without thinking about it, assumed that Reservoir Dogs was third. Just without even thinking. It's like For years, probably for me too. Yeah, yeah, it just was a given, and now I think things have changed a lot. Yeah, I don't know. It's another one that like I hold in a high regard, but I'm at a point where I don't really feel like watching it very often. Yeah. Number five for me, Inglorious Bastards. Number five for me, finally, Death Proof. <laughs> Good I, Lord. Things I'll say... I, I love it. I watched this might it be the recently. most shocking moment of this two-part fiction podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Death Proof, man. I You're that guy. I guess I am, yeah. You're the one. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think it's so fun, so well done. You know, it has all the classic Tarantino I stuff. love the girls. Like, I yeah. love that girl gang. I thought the one girl, I, I don't remember which character is which, the African-American girl, she says, like, moo-moo motherfucker. Oh, right. yeah, yeah. I thought she was going to be, like, a huge star. Same. Cause when she's I first saw that movie, like I was a, like, this girl is a huge star. I was like, this is like Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> like, this, like, this is girl is great. Her career. Yeah, it Mary really Elizabeth happen. Winstead, obviously. Yeah, pops now, up. and like, even when I saw Grindhouse in the theater, I think I originally liked Planet Terror more. But yeah, me too. When I got to, and like, you're so far into it at this point, it's really long between the two movies. But when you get to that sequence, when they do this whole crazy car chase scene where Zoe Bell's like on the front of the car and everything, like, yeah. 
it, I just thought it was like so intense and really cool. It's just like a really cool sequence. But I think there's more to it that I've grown to like over the years. And like I said, I watched it again recently, and I, I I'm in on it. I I think yeah, I probably need to rewatch that uh, in addition to Django. I I think yeah. those are the two that I'm probably the weakest on as far as rewatches and knowledge. I I mean I do understand that that probably is a controversial take, but I I do. No, there's I mean, some, it's good. There's something about it that I like. So four for me is Kill Bill. Okay. Which you had at seven. Right. Like I said, I mean, we already talked about it pretty in depth. I would just say that it has grown yeah. in stature for me. And it might be time for me. Upon the rewatch yeah. of the whole thing together. It just feels so epic when you watch it all together. The music is incredible. I love the music. For sure. I do agree with that. The music is really I can cool remember in sitting in the theater for part one and when it goes into that Nancy Sinatra song that yes, starts. that part People is awesome. were like. Because I think most people probably hadn't even heard that song before. I definitely hadn't. And I you're hadn't just either. like, what is this? This is incredible. Yeah, I definitely did not hear that. That's the Bang Bang song. Yeah. yeah, I know. It is awesome. Right. I agree with that. It's just, I, I do think that it suffers from being split in two. Because I think if you, I mean, yes, yeah. it's super long to watch both of them together. You're talking like almost five hours probably. But like, probably like four and a half or something. And I, But I like, know. when you watch it together and you've, you follow the whole thing you appreciate the scope i do of like it. it and i really like the what's her name beatrix kiddo yeah the beatrix kiddo like backstory with these whatever they were the assassins mm-hmm. i'm really in on that and i, I like the the flashbacks I, I don't know what it is it feels like just too much time dedicated to the lucy lou character see i love all that stuff okay the, except for the the anime yeah yeah backstory for her which I don't know how you could accomplish that backstory better. I mean, because obviously using real people would have cost way more money and it would have, you know, been a whole thing. It feels like Lucy Liu gets like way more of a backstory than the other characters. She does. Like you don't really know the Vivica Fox one at all, right? Although it is kind of setting up what people assumed that Kill Bill Three would be about, which was like her daughter ten years later. Oh yeah, yeah. But that, of course, never came to fruition. And is probably not going to happen. Uh, true, right. It was rumored to have still been on the table, you know, heading into the time where they would have needed to have started making it to get it out by, like, 2014. But it just, just never happened. Yeah. And uh, in, in a way, even though I do appreciate the film more than you, I mean, I'm happy that that's not going to be the 10th movie, probably. I, I mean, I'd sure. like him to go somewhere completely new and different. Yeah, same, right. If he was going to make I'm an endless amount of new movies, then yeah, great. Do another Kill Bill. But if you're only going to do one more, then no. Something else, please. Right, true. All right, your number, uh, number four. Number four for me, Inglorious Bastards. A lot of just great scenes in this movie. Yeah, when we did it, when I mentioned it for five, I feel right. like we barely talked oh, that's about true. it. But <laughs> it's a good point. I did gloss over it. I think I just needed to get Death Proof off. Yeah, my chest at that point, like it was just lingering out there for too long. And we just, yeah, well, let's talk about it now. Yeah, this is another one like Kill Bill for me that I feel like I've appreciated more upon a recent rewatch. Yeah, and I mean, I loved it when I saw it in the theater. It's definitely fucking jarring as you get to the end of it and they just kill Hitler. <laughs> You're like, yeah, oh, because that's the first time that he played around with changing like history, rewriting history. Yeah. It has, like, the cool ending and everything, like, the outrageous thing where they carve the swastika in the guy's yeah. forehead. Yeah, I mean, some people probably weren't super in on having 
Brad Pitt like look into the camera and say, I do think this is my masterpiece because people felt like that was Quentin Tarantino saying it about the movie. I, Getting I a little carried like away with himself. I don't know. In the post Once Upon a Time in Hollywood world we're living in now, I, I'm all of a sudden seeing. <laughs> I've actually been seeing a lot of people acting like Inglorious Bastards is his best movie, and it's like without question. And even though I do really like it, that to me is kind no, of no. I mean, it's insane. Yeah, right. It's okay. completely yeah, insane. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, Inglorious Bastards for me, the upside of it, some of the scenes are just so good and so well done. Yeah, and it seems like it's only five scenes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> They're just so long. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But like by the end, it gets obviously really silly. From when it's it a super out. cool cast, yeah. Because most people weren't super familiar with Fastbender yet. True, that was the first thing I saw. Yeah, and then all of a sudden there he is. Nobody knew who Christoph Waltz was. He was completely oh, right. unknown. Yeah. To and America. he's like he like steals the show. In fact, if Tarantino had not found Christoph Waltz, I don't think that movie would be made. There's no one else that could speak wow, yeah. German, I, French, and English right. that clearly and be that confident and be yeah, that yeah. character with all those languages. There was just no one else that could pull that character off, right. I don't think. At least in that way. He might have done the movie, but it would have been different, I think. Yep. And Diane Kruger was, you know, she had been in Troy, but I mean, she wasn't super well-known. Yeah. And Melanie Laurent was pretty well-known. Five uh, C. Pretty not well-known, yeah. <laughs> Later on. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen her pop up since, yeah, yeah, says, but, but before that, not really. Right. And yeah, you have Brad Pitt as the star. This kind of kicked off a new phase for Tarantino of working with big movie stars. By the way, friend of the show, Eli Roth. Yes. In the movie. <laughs> Just a, a very insane concept. And there were people that pushed back a little bit on it. It wasn't without controversy. I mean, it's it's a, it's certainly a delicate subject to rewrite history when it involves something as horrible as like the Holocaust and all this stuff. Not that the movie really even gets into that very much or anything, but I think it's one of those things where I understand what people are saying, but I think if you really do your research into Tarantino and you, and you think about what the way he thinks and the way he thinks about movies is something that started with Inglorious Bastards and, and was continued into Django not really so much on display in Hateful Eight, but once again shows up in Once yes. Upon a Time in Hollywood. And that is using what you love to destroy hate. Right. And he loves movies. And so what he does is he creates these movies that rewrites the worst things that he can think of. Yeah, like yeah. These bad, horrible things, these hateful moments in the world's history. And he battles that with his passion, which is movies, and creating characters and creating situations in these movies. I get why people find some of the real life stuff, you know, a little bit delicate and sure, what sure. have you. Yeah. But I think when you think of it like that and what his motivation is for doing these things, it's hard to stay mad at that, I think. That's true. I'm interested to see this. Are we going to be lockstep here with these top three? Probably. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Number three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. For me as well. So we're going to talk about that after we finish yeah. this list. Okay, yep. That's right. Number two, Pulp Fiction. Yep. Number one, Jackie Brown. Oh, yeah. We have the same top three. Believe it, because that's the right answer. uh, (laughs) That's why. I mean, we might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves on the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood thing. It was up my alley. I'll just say that. Yeah. I loved it, too. We'll talk about it in a second. Pulp Fiction, we just spent two episodes talking about. I think... If you switch Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown, I think that's acceptable. That is acceptable. We just... 
I don't know. I think most people would have Pulp Fiction number one. I think that would be the vast majority of people. That doesn't necessarily mean it's right, but I I think it's certainly understandable why that would be number one. I'm sure there are considered his masterpiece. Probably think it's a little crazy to have Jackie Brown number one. I think it's growing though amongst film fans. Oh, good. I think there's it deserves to be yeah understanding it's often cited as his most mature movie his most adult movie his calmest movie right whatever i don't necessarily think about that i don't i don't judge each movie like in terms of the growth of his career i think of how entertaining is this? exactly and how much do i want to watch it yeah and jackie brown is so rewatchable it's such a great hang i love all of the characters in it if you were going to rank quentin tarantino characters I would say Jackie Brown would have at least three in the top ten, which would be more than maybe any other movie, except Pulp Fiction might as well have three. I don't know. I mean, De Niro in that movie is unbelievable. Pam Greer is unbelievable. Bridget Fonda is unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I think it's kind of Samuel Jackson's scariest, craziest character. That's true, yeah. Most Such a bizarre right. chip-on-his-shoulder psychopath. Forster. Robert Forster's great, too. I love everything about it. I love the vibe of it, yeah. It's the closest he's ever gotten to being, like, sentimental, but not in a bad way. True. In a way that feels very cathartic and good at the end, and it's not cheesy or anything. It's a happy ending, but in a a smart, fun way where you don't feel lame. In almost a poignant way, too, the way it leaves with Robert Forster. What's that? It it almost feels a little bit poignant, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. I've definitely heard teared people talking about the bit. movie oh. talking no saying that they teared up. I've okay. never actually gotten emotional from Jackie Brown, but yet. Yeah, I mean there's probably a time where it'll hit me yeah. in the right <laughs> way. <laughs> it's such a great movie. I mean, we talked about it a lot in we the We did episode. do an episode on it. Yeah. yeah, it you know, he took this Elmer Leonard crime novel and he formed it into this celebration of black exploitation characters and and tropes and stuff but he did it in his own unique way it's just like everything else he takes things and makes it his own and i don't know i love it but let's talk about once upon a time in hollywood because everybody's been waiting for our take obviously we just listed our top tarantino movies and we both had it insanely high hey now ass clowns it's your old pal zach from the greatest moments in the history of forever I hope everyone's enjoying our ridiculously long two-part Pulp Fiction episode. Calm down, this isn't a commercial. Pay attention. In all of our excitement to discuss Tarantino's new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we forgot to provide one last spoiler warning. So this is it. Consider yourself warned. There will be spoilers ahead, and if you don't want a single thing ruined for you, that's understandable. We'll see you next time, and thanks for listening. However... If you've already seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or don't care, then by all means, keep listening. Thank you for your time. I think we've touched on it a little bit. I mean, seemingly a a lot of controversy over the the Brad Pitt character. I would say some. Some controversy. Okay, not a lot. It's interesting when you hear people talk about this because some people will act like it's a lot, but I think it's because they live in a bubble of just these super woke how liberal can we be type journalists i think in reality there's some controversy around some elements of this film which are certainly very minor and a lot less of a controversy than i think people thought before they saw the movie i think the brad pitt character is insanely entertaining in this movie yeah it's awesome i mean yeah and i i love the cliff (laughs) 
and oh, what's DiCaprio's character's name? Rick Dalton. Yeah, uh, the the Cliff Booth Rick Dalton friendship dynamic interactions. I, I, it's just I think so entertaining. Yeah, I would agree. I I mean I didn't know that we were going to necessarily start with the controversies of the film, but well, I just wanted to preface what I was about to say of how much I loved Brad Pitt's character in this movie. Yeah, I think the movie for a big part of it is just an homage, a Valentine to Los Angeles sure, in that time absolutely. period. Absolutely. The movies that were playing the on the marquee, the songs and the commercials on the radio, the way that Hollywood acted, the way that it worked, which I think I don't know how many people out there apart certainly when we limit it to the listeners of this show apart from you and I that appreciate a valley of the dolls reference in a movie <laughs> yeah you know well Sharon Tate is a character exactly in the film yes she Who was certainly in that movie. functions as the princess or the angel in the center of the film doesn't necessarily speak a lot but lives up in a high castle above Rick Dalton and is always there. She's she's like the center of the film. She's like this presence because those of us familiar with the what actually happens surrounding her in August of 1969, we know where this is heading and that of course looms over the entire film. Right. And I do think there's a feeling I, of dread of where you're going. Yeah, I was explaining to you before we started that there were younger people I'd heard that like were kind of confused yeah, by yeah. what was happening in the movie. I do think you need well, I don't a think... little bit of knowledge of the Manson murders to fully appreciate what's yeah. happening. I don't think I was familiar. I I definitely didn't grow up knowing that story. I mean, I think in high school I became aware of it. So I think by the time I was seeing rated R movies in the theater, I knew it. Yeah, but I mean, even though I wouldn't say that you were an expert on it, but like we watched Valley of the Dolls, so we certainly talked about Sharon Tate being murdered. Oh, by absolutely, the Manson family. Well, yeah, yeah, and I knew it right. Like, and she was married to Roman. Polanski. I saw like the made-for-TV Helter Skelter movie or whatever when I was in yeah. high school. So yeah, I mean, I knew of course, Cielo Drive was the name of the street. I knew who was at her house. I knew. Oh, I know yeah. things that they didn't even do in the movie, like the guest house person. Right. Well, to be fair, guest. you just know a lot about murder. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> and you know, people have different takes on the accepted, the most popular accepted version of the story, the one that was presented in court. The I will one say, that man, Vincent Bugliosi wrote about yeah. Elder Skelter, which a lot of people now kind of think is uh, not necessarily what really was okay. going on. But right. the whole idea that they were trying to start a race war between blacks and whites and that they were going to murder these people and then try to get it framed on black people. So, oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, who knows if that story is even true, but that's yeah. what they presented in court. I don't know. You know all these different Probably details, not. and that hangs over the movie. Hey, you saw it before me, and I think the way that the movie goes was a little bit more of what I was expecting, just based on how Tarantino's movies have been. When you <laughs> told me ahead of time, like, Whatever you're expecting about this movie, like, forget it. <laughs> so as the movie is going along, I'm starting to think to myself, is he actually going to go, like, dark and, like, morose and serious with this? And no, it's, like, I it's wasn't gonna... talking about, like, what happens oh, well, yeah, in I the movie. I realized that later. but like... I was talking about the style of the movie. Like, I think it, it, it's interesting that we're doing Pulp Fiction because the beginning of Pulp Fiction opens with this long car drive with two of the characters just talking nonstop. And there is a lot of driving in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, sure. And in a lot of those scenes, there is no talking, even when there's two people in a car. Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio are in a car several times and don't talk. 
there's a lot more comfort in silence in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, True. which is very different. And the pace is way more laid back. It's definitely his closest to Jackie Brown as far as pace. For sure. I mean, we talked about it, kind of a return to the Hangout movie style. A yeah, like bit. we talked about in Glorious Bastards opening scene. It's like you have Christoph Waltz talking up a storm. And even though that movie's in a lot of different languages... <laughs> And covers a lot of different characters. There's a lot of talking. There's a lot of yeah. talking in all of his movies, except Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which there's a lot less talking. And the pop culture references are just the world that they're oh, living yeah. in. Now, right, granted, exactly. there's just, little shout outs here and there, but they don't have long conversations about what songs mean or anything exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I the look- violence is all saved towards the end. Right. Yes. <laughs> the moment we've all been waiting for. As yeah. And it. I mean, the, the end is just crazy. But it's entertaining. It's and cathartic fun. because you, yeah. The first time you see the movie, yes, you're not sure what's going to happen. Right. You think maybe you do, and but you, you had don't know. In my head a little bit because I'm like, wow, well, it's good. I'm glad that I did. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Because then it throws even more uncertainty. I was fairly confident that it wasn't going to play out like it really did. I didn't think that either. And then when you were like, telling me to throw away know. expectations, I was like, it's not like anything else. I was like, anything else that Tarantino's done. I was thinking to myself, man, is this going to be like he's actually going to play this out and it's going to be like this dark sad thing because you also told me how sad you were for days after you saw the movie <laughs> yeah but just on, nostalgia that's, any movie. Sad, yeah. <laughs> that's almost anything yeah like really. 1969 los angeles nostalgia makes you sad no i mean i was sad because i wanted it to be the way that it actually happened meaning right. like in the movie yeah. i wish what happened in the movie was what was what real happened, right yes Instead of a fantasy. Uh, that's certainly a part of it, and what so, he's going for a little bit, I think. Okay. I guess the way to preface this would be, people have kind of commented on the fact that women don't talk a lot in this movie. They don't necessarily talk a lot in a lot of Tarantino's movies. Whatever. I, I think the fact that there was literally oh, yeah, yeah, an yeah, article... Yeah, yeah, I did see articles about this that did like the statistics. It's like Moneyball. Where they were counting the lines of dialogue and stuff. Right, yeah, and like giving percentages. To yeah, it. I mean, just like, insane. Oh, yeah, yeah. We all remember the graphic that came out about the percentage of dialogues in the Best Picture winners. Remember this? Okay, yes. And how they were all slanted in one direction. Right, right. So, in other words, this is not a Tarantino problem. Yeah. This is just a problem. And to try to pin it on him specifically is insane. It's an insane thing to do because they're so mad that they didn't get his scalp because he didn't celebrate Polanski in this movie, that Charles Manson is almost like an afterthought. He's barely, barely in, it. in it. Yeah. There's no celebration of the Manson family, and they didn't exploit Sharon Tate's death. In fact, I they did believe- the exact yeah. opposite. I, 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 and what I'm getting to is, so they're doing this thing where counting lines, bullshit. Shut up, Matt. They act like Sharon Tate didn't talk enough, Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate. But a large portion of her time on screen is her by herself, so there's not really anyone to talk to. Okay, sure. She goes to town by herself. She ends up going to that movie. And that movie is particularly a poignant thing where she watches herself on screen. You see how happy she is by entertaining these people. And that makes you fall in love with this character of Sharon Tate. And the truth about Sharon Tate, from everything you know and read and can find out, I know that people act like the dead are a lot better than they were, but everything you hear about her is like she was this nice, great person. They show her picking up a hitchhiker in the movie. You know, all this stuff. Yeah. So they build all of that up, and you feel great about her. You're like, this is a really nice moment of her watching herself and really being happy by how people are reacting to her on the screen. She just wants to entertain these people. It makes her so happy. So then when they do that jump in time 
from February to August, and now she's super pregnant. Yep. And all of a sudden, you know, if you are familiar with the Manson murders, you're like, this is the day. In fact, this is we just had the 50th anniversary like yesterday or whatever. Okay. This is the day that it happened. Oh, God, here we go. And now all of a sudden you're worried because you don't know how this is going. The (laughs) first time you see it, you're like, oh, no. And so when they show her super pregnant now after building her up as this person, which I think Tarantino did a great job of, even though she doesn't have necessarily have a lot of lines of dialogue, you are thinking, oh, my God, I hope they don't kill this pregnant woman in front of me. I don't want to see that. Right. So when what happens happens, even though it is, as you said, like so ridiculous and over the top, you were like... Oh, you're rooting for it. Ecstatic. I've seen this in the theater three times. I love listening to the crowd react to this scene now. It's like so great. But I mean, also, it's just like when DiCaprio goes and grabs that (laughs) flamethrower out of the shed. (laughs) Yeah, it's like Chekhov's gun, except it's Chekhov's (laughs) flamethrower. If a flamethrower is shown in the beginning, it's going to be used at the end. That's right. I mean, I know we're spoiling the fuck out of everything, but whatever. You're just like, oh my God, this is so great. Because it's not even enough that Cliff and rick end up killing the three manson family people that come into the house it's not enough to just kill them it has to be the most insane way ever (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's so brutal and crazy and that like being his moment (laughs) where it's all gonna work out for him now because he's invited up to the polanski yeah i think the ending is open to interpretation i saw some people were like oh that's a cynical way to look at it like rick dalton's career is gonna be better when the reality is you should be thinking about Sharon, her baby, and all this stuff. And it's like, that's true. Yeah. Sharon now, in this but, fantasy, gets to okay. live. But that's also not as much of the perspective of the movie that we're looking through, either. It's much more of a Rick Dalton movie. Right, but I think like the, the whole point of why Tarantino would want to make the story and tell it this way is the fantasy of oh, allowing I agree. Sharon Tate to live. But the idea that it's a cynical view, I I'm, I more think the Rick Dalton thing is like I don't a agree funny note. that yeah. it's cynical. I just think it's one of the things you would see. Because True. as we've talked about, a lot of Rick Dalton seems to be based off of Burt Reynolds. Yeah. And Burt Reynolds was a struggling actor, and he was doing a lot of the same stuff. In fact, that episode of FBI that they have DiCaprio as Rick Dalton do is an episode that Burt Reynolds was in. Okay, okay. And then Burt Reynolds went to Italy to make shitty spaghetti westerns. Not shitty, but like not Leone, like the the B-level ones. And then he comes back and he builds up his career and he becomes like a star. Now, the way they do DiCaprio's character is probably older than Burt Reynolds was at that time, but it's the same idea. And so, yeah, I think it's fair to be like Rick Dalton thinks he's this person who's – a loser, but in reality, Sharon Tate and J.C. Ring and right. those people were talking about him, and they knew who he was, and it was just this perception of himself as a loser. But he was still the guy that was Jake Cahill on Bounty Law, right? Now, and even the Manson family recognized. And him. I, I mean, I know I understand Sharon Tate, certainly Roman Polanski, Charlie Manson are all real people, but like it, Bruce Lee. But I mean, we didn't even talk about the Bruce well, Lee. And here's the thing. I think the fucking scene with Cliff Booth and Bruce Lee is really funny. I propose to you a theory, which then Sean Fennessy on the big picture stole from you. No, he just repeated it. And I was like, yeah, this is what I thought. No, too. I saw that. I saw a couple articles citing that as well, which is basically this is the way that Cliff Booth is remembering that scene because he knows that that's the moment he fucked himself and lost his career as a stuntman, basically. And so in his mind, he's remembering that as at least I got to like 
beat up Bruce Lee a little bit. And people were acting like, A, Cliff Booth kicks the shit out of Bruce Lee. It's like, no, it's a pretty even exchange, number one. Right. Number two, when Cliff Booth catches him and throws him into the car, it's a huge dent, which should be your first indication that maybe this isn't real. Well, There's no way the car would be dented like that from that. Here's the thing about the whole movie. None of it feels real to me. Well, yeah, and <laughs> this is just mean? like an unreliable narrator yeah. remembering something, I think. And people have taken this whole thing as like disrespectful portrayal of Bruce Lee. And I don't know what they're more hung up on, the fact that Cliff Booth holds his own in a fight or the fact that he acts like an arrogant ass, Bruce Lee. I don't know which is worse, or the fact that he kind of but again, disparages Cassius Clay a little bit. <laughs> forget I don't know. even the perspective of who we're seeing this flashback from. Did any of these people see the end of the movie and think that we should be acting like this is from I, history? I know. I, mean, I think that it's okay for Bruce Lee's family to be put off by it. If I think they ain't that's down, fine. Yeah, that's fine. I think uh, other people picking up that cause as if they give a shit about Bruce Lee or his family. It's the same thing that we talked about with Green Book. It's just like people pretending like they care about something. It's like, shut up. And and that's the thing. I don't think these controversies have really been that big. That's true. To this point, this many days in the theaters, it's made more money than Inglorious Bastards did to this point. So, I mean, it's it's, it's outperforming a lot of his movies. You know, clickbait and trying to get the headlines out and everything. I think mostly people have liked the film. It has, like, a very high score on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, not his highest, not even close, but I, I think that makes sense. And I do think that for certain Tarantino fans, if they watch this film and it's not what they like about Tarantino, I can see it being boring to some or not their favorite. Oh, wow. I definitely didn't feel boring out of it. No, I didn't either. But I'm saying <laughs> if you like Tarantino for very specific reasons, this th- this movie doesn't have a lot That's of that true. stuff. I guess this felt like almost... There are more... a lot of people that don't like Jackie Brown. And sure. that was our number both of our yeah, number right. ones. So this almost felt, to me, more of a return to what I like, minus... Like, the way that the end plays out, which I did enjoy in the theaters and I had fun with it, but, like, that whole end sequence, that felt more to me like Kill Bill, Django Unchained, Hateful Eight, whereas the rest of the movie did not feel like That's true, but I need that ending. I have to have that ending for that movie. I agree that it was Because it's about Sharon Tate. If this wasn't about the Sharon Tate, Charles Manson stuff, then fine, I don't need the violence at the end. But if you're going to tell me that this is what this is about and you're building towards this moment... And that moment's what's hanging over everything. I I want that cathartic release of like, yes, let's kill these pieces of shit and let Sharon live. Oh, I'm with you on that, and it and it definitely certainly worked, and I enjoyed it, and I, you know I was certainly like cheering basically at the end. So I'm not really sure what the deal is. We we've talked a lot about Tarantino off mic. It seems like people have always been out to get him for some reason. I don't know why, but. What? Heading into this movie, people were like bound and determined to get him. Now, it might have been because of Harvey Weinstein, it's ramped up, and it might be because of the Kill Bill story with the Uma Thurman injury or whatever. Uma Thurman, whose daughter is in this movie. Yes. I don't know what the reason is. It, it's just like a long history, and he's a successful white man, and this is like obviously a time where people are taking some of them down or whatever. Sure. I don't know. And, and his movies are ultra violent, and well, I just they think... use insane language, as we talked about in the Bonnie situation. So uh, yeah. he's always at a target. I think we're in a time now, and this is like, forget like, I, I, would, I think we've been in this for like at least 10 years now, if not longer, where it just, just feels like people do hate 
su- sustained success. Yeah, and he doesn't fit like I like we talked about. He doesn't go along with the program all the time, and he does his own thing. He's not worried about what people are going to think, and that just doesn't fit in with a lot of people. So, heading into this movie, there was a lot of knives being sharpened. People were oh, getting yeah. ready for, oh, he celebrates Roman Polanski. Oh, he celebrates the Manson family, or he exploits Sharon Tate, or whatever. Even though after it was announced that this movie was going to happen, he went to Sharon Tate's sister. He showed her the script. He talked to her about it. She loved it. She gave it her full blessing. She, yeah. When the movie came out, she talked about how great it was because it felt like she got to see her sister on the screen. That's right. All this stuff. And She was just like, as long as it's not Jennifer Lawrence. He never good. talked to Roman Polanski. Roman was not included in the making of this movie. Polanski is really not much of a character in this. Right, but to get anything, True. like the input about Sharon or anything, he used Sharon's sister exclusively. And I think for those of us who have seen Inglorious Bastards and even Django Unchained, we know that he likes to fix things that he thinks are bad in our history. And I think we should have known all along that it wasn't going to be the controversial thing that people yeah. were thinking. So when the movie came out, I think, I mean, I, I told you that I tweeted something like this at someone. <laughs> I think that people were like having to delete the think pieces they had already written, oh, planning yeah. on one thing, and then they started reaching. And the reaching, I felt like, was getting desperate, and they really latched onto the Bruce Lee thing, which, I, like I said, I think it's fine that if Bruce Lee's family is not necessarily sure, cool with yeah. it, but come on, people. I mean, really? If anybody truly thinks that Quentin Tarantino doesn't love Bruce Lee, they're fucking crazy. Well, even they're crazy. Stuff with Polanski, obviously, like, whatever happened with him, horrible. I think we can all agree on that. But it's like, <laughs> you know, but we get to this thing where it's like almost like what you were talking about before of like we shouldn't try to like censor out or erase history it's like this guy was still a character or a person that existed directed movies i mean right. to include him in the movie is fine yeah and they did it in a way where he doesn't really talk i mean he yeah he has like one or two lines that you don't even understand what he's saying and then they even make kind of a joke at his, his expense a couple of times right and that's it and Charles Manson, who seems like he's going to be in it a lot more because he's in the trailer, is barely in it. Now, okay, so let's that brings us to the rumors for Netflix, the oh four-hour miniseries that might be coming. I don't know. What there's is this? talk. I don't know about this. Well, like The Hateful Eight, there's going to potentially be an extended four-hour oh, okay. episodic version of this. It probably later. won't have like that much more to add that's... Well, it's two hours and 45 minutes. That would be over an hour of more material. Yeah, I know. But I just feel like whenever you get something like that, you start watching it and it's like the stuff that's added. You're just kind of like, yeah. Well, we do know that there were actors that were cut out. That's there true. were actors whose parts so were we'll cut way down. So we'll have a Tim Roth scene. <laughs> well, we know that there was more Charles Manson stuff because the thing in the trailer oh, wasn't even in the movie. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Who knows? All right. If you love the movie that much, I think you'd be excited about it. I'm interested. I like the theatrical cut. Yeah, I did too, but it would just be like an additional thing to look at. Okay, I'm in on it. All right, I'll come (laughs) over. We'll get a pizza. Okay, so that brings us to this week's recommendations. We didn't do it for part one. I'm going to do it real quick because this is... this Wow. Part two is way longer than part one. Is it really? Holy shit. Okay, so my recommendations are both TV shows. Dairy Girls season two, available on Netflix from the mind of Lisa McGee. I don't know. I think a lot of people probably watched season one. Six episodes. Girls in Ireland, early to mid-90s. Yeah. A lot of cranberries playing, which hey, I love. I'm in on that. Season two is not as fun 
as season one. It's not as funny. Okay. But it's still enjoyable. I liked it. I liked the characters. I could go more and more with it. It's just one of those things where they get into a situation where one person is basically, I think, writing every single episode, kind of like Fleabag on Amazon. And it's just yeah. like, it's very hard to, even though there's only six per season, it, it's just like, it's a lot. So I don't know. I mean, I think that they're definitely doing a season three, but we know that shows in England don't tend to last as long as American shows. That's true. So I don't know how much longer it's going to go. It focuses on like the troubles and that whole time period, you know, the IRA and all that shit. But there's some fun moments in season two, and I would recommend checking it out. Do you have any this week? Uh, I do, actually. Um, and I promise that I'll get off of this theme uh, for future eps, but it is another Criterion. Okay. What I've watched recently that really stuck with me, I've actually watched it a couple times now, Austrian Criterion movie, <laughs> Revanche. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when I watched it, I was just completely blown away by how similar it is to Place Beyond the Pines that it's like so clearly inspired a lot of the scenes mm -hmm. in Place Beyond the Pines, which is a movie that I love. It's really cool. Shot really cool. Really well done. There's a lot going on there. A lot of the story is kind of similar to Place Beyond the Pines. Uh, if you get a chance, I would certainly check it out. My second is a show from Australia, which you can check out on Hulu called No Activity. They did turn it into a an American show that's on CBS All Access. I've never seen that. I don't have CBS All Access. I know okay. Tim Meadows is in it. And the one of the guys from the Australian version is in it as well. There's only 12 total episodes, and I think there's maybe a Christmas special, so maybe 13. Is that it? Are they doing more? No, the Australian one is over because oh, okay. he's now doing the American one. Gotcha. But it, it's available on Hulu. It's called No Activity. I showed you the first episode. Yeah, which guy of the The two? younger. I think he's like the creator. The weirder one or the... The the younger one. Okay. Not the one that tells the story about yeah, yeah, the dog. Yeah, yeah, okay, right. The more straight. Like the younger of the two. Yeah, yeah. Because I think it's like his thing that he created gotcha. or whatever. He kind of reminds me of like Gervais. Right. Kind of is doing a Gervais a little bit at times. Yeah. Do you have a second thing? I don't. Okay, that's week. fine. All right, so this is probably way longer than part one, whatever. This is Pulp Fiction, folks. Yeah. It's not going to get any bigger than this. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, which we talked about a lot, and Maybe once we'll it comes do... out on Blu-ray yeah. and everything, we'll probably do, do it, it as a regular right, episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? But uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of our 150 regular episodes. I know we're up to, like, what, 170-something yeah. total with the Give Us a Seconds, maybe 180. Thanks for sticking with us. Yeah. It's been a wild ride. We plan on continuing it. <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> yeah, for some reason. I don't know. All right. So follow us on Twitter at GreatestPod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And thanks for listening. Much too long, you can't come back. I think you are still mad. You're out of touch, my baby. Not for old fashioned, baby. I said, baby, 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 you're out of touch.
What is this guy again? They call him a cleaner. He makes problems go away. Hello, Elaine. Where'd you get the car? It's a rental. Where are they? In the back. All right. I'm going to need a clean eight-ounce glass. What is going on here? If I'm Kurt, then I apologize. <laughs> but as I understand it, we have a situation here. And time is of the essence. 